Logical Progression, Year 3, Lesson 12. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen. Wa la aqibatu lil muttaqeena wa la udvana illa ala al-zalimeen. Wa salawatullahi wa salamuhu wa la ashraf ala al-biyai wa al-mursaleen Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa ashabihi ajma'in. Allahumma la sahla illa ma ja'altahu sahla wa anta tajlu al-hazna idha shi'a sahla. Allahumma أعنا على ذكرك وشكرك وحسن عبادتك يا رب العالمين السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته الله it's good to see some of you for a while I haven't seen you guys for a while been traveling around and soon be traveling again next week's session the reason this one is on Tuesday today and we might even we might even look at this, I think, maybe moving it to Wednesday every once in a while, as opposed to doing a recorded double. We have a chat about that, maybe, because those are the two comparisons, isn't it? To do a, a recorded double if I'm traveling, or to just move it to Tuesday. Um, but I'm traveling tomorrow, um, and next week's lesson will be in the IAIS which is the Institute of Advanced Islamic Studies. That's Dr. Hashim Kamali's institute in Kuala Lumpur. Um, and that will be next week, so that will be the roadshow. So that won't be here locally, but it will be on the same time, right time, inshallah, next Wednesday. And then we're back in again in Shido. So I, the most, most of the next couple of months are actually still around uh, locally. Today's lesson is interesting. It's a nice lesson, actually. I enjoyed tonight's lesson. Um, it's a good load of pages, but the way I've structured it, we should be able to breeze through it, inshallah. It's nice because it's the ending of our chapter, and it's a major chapter, so it's like a you know a significant chapter, and this will be the closing of this chapter. Um, and then next week we'll start the new book, Kitab al-Ghusl, or Bab al-Ghusl. Um, and also, uh, in this week's session... After we finish, inshallah, I uh, hope to take some of the questions that were uh, that I um, that were outstanding from Fitna Salah, which many of you will benefit from, because they'll be pr- uh, presented on the screen as well, <coughs> or presented on the portal, and and uh, everyone will benefit from that. So it'll be, uh, of course, after the lesson, everyone is free to leave, but there'll be that little extra at the end. Okay, so let's start then. What are we talking about? We're talking about that final bit of text. So it is impermissible for one without wudu to touch the mushaf, to pray, or to perform the tawaf. A huge discussion needs to be made about the mushaf. It's a very interesting one. And uh, let's start. We kind of began yesterday, um, uh, last week. When we said that uh, Sheikh Uthameen starts off right, Mus'haf, what's a Mus'haf? He says, well, it's, what, it's what we all understand, is that which has the Qur'an written in it completely, so it's the physical copy of the Qur'an. That's what's called a Mus'haf. It's actually very interesting how many uh, Muslims, I think more packs than anything else, don't know what a Mus'haf is. It's not a phrase that they're used to, whereas the Arabs, of course, they call it a Mus'haf all the time. Whereas in our culture, we don't call it Mus'haf. Yeah? What do we call it? Qur'an Majid, I think, isn't it? Qur'an Majid, yeah. I think that's it. So, uh, Mus'haf is the actual, as I said last week, Suhuf, 
the pages put together and the Mus'haf is what holds them together. It is the Quran, physical Quran. And Sheikh Uthameen says something very interesting, which, which, there is some difference of opinion about, about, but he said that even if a single ayah is written on a piece of paper, it takes the ruling of the Mus'haf. And he said that even if it's half the Quran written on something, it takes the ruling of Mus'haf. If that's all that it is there, so if it's a, a page of writing, it takes the ruling of the Mus'haf. If you think about it, it makes sense. And you're already operating like that. You didn't, just didn't realize it. When you hear it, it sounds strange, but you know that if you have a Mus'haf page, you, you try to kind of, you know, burn it or whatever. You know, like when you try and dispose of it, you, you act like it's the full Qur'an. So automatically from your culture, you've already accepted it. But now you're hearing it academically. That even an ayah written is, a, is considered the ruling of the Mus'haf. Now what's interesting, of course, about that is that this will now come back to us later. Remember this point where we're going to discuss the ruling on uh, an iPad or a phone, an iPhone. And what the ruling is for touching that. And so it's going to become interesting. So anyway, <coughs> straight into it then. The muhdith is the one who has no wudu. Yeah? No, he is ba wudu. Yes? And he... Ba wudu or be wudu? Be wudu? Be wudu. Sorry, be wudu. Yeah. See, I'm getting my baz and my bez mixed up. Be wudu is the one who has no wudu. Yeah? So it doesn't matter whether it's hadith al-asghar or akbar. It doesn't matter which any minor impurity or, re- or major ritual impurity. But if you don't have wudu, you are called a muhdith. No wudu. Alright? So, what is the uh, evidence? Straight away, it is the ayah of Quran which all of the scholars use. In fact, we'll talk about who it is that uses who. But what are the evidences? They use the ayah uh, or the ayat from Surah Al-Waqi'ah that indeed, إِنَّهُ لَقُرْآنٌ كَرِيمٌ We covered these verses uh, last week. I'll just very quickly go over it again في كتاب مكنون لا يمسه okay, with a ضمة إلا المطهرون okay, with a شدة تنزيل من رب العالمين so it is indeed a noble book in a preserved written in it is a noble recitation in a preserved book none teach it none, none touch it sorry except those who are purified it is a revelation from the Lord of the worlds so that's the translation of that so the idea is because it is Qur'anul Kareem, the wording is Qur'anul Kareem, so that refers to the Qur'an, and the idea is that don't, no one, none touch it except those who are purified, which is straightforward, done deal. Of course, what we are discussing now, and it's quite clear, that actually the verse uh, doesn't necessarily refer to the Mus'haf that we have, and those that are mutahharun does not necessarily refer to people who are here, in the dunya, meaning people, humans, basically. So we're going to come to that. Um, also, we said that the way that it's been mentioned, you see, if I say to you, لا إلا okay, if I say to you, don't touch the Mus'haf, you're not allowed to touch it unless you're pure, that's said in a different way, in different Arabic, to a statement. This is what we call a khabar. A talab, would be when I request you not to do it. Don't do it. You're not allowed to do it. Call it a request, call it an order. Then there's a different way of speaking, which is to mention a statement of fact. The pure, only the pure touch it. So that's a factual statement, which could then lead to an argument afterwards, 
that even though it's a factual statement and therefore doesn't come off as an order, um, it therefore doesn't necessarily have the strength of such a pro- prohibition. Statement of fact, it could basically mean that therefore it's good for you therefore to be pure because really, you know what, only the pure touch it. It's not like right in your face, like don't touch it. So this is one argument that was put forward. Anyway, the real thing is about the second evidence. Because as you can see, the Quranic ayah has some discussion about it. So the real discussion is around the hadith. And that's why Shaykh Uthameen, we pick it up on page 316, where he says that the evidence they use is the uh, the uh, uh, the letter, or the it's a hadith, but then we discover that it's actually a letter. That the letter of Amr ibn, Haz, ibn Hazm. Amr ibn Hazm. And this is something which was written to him by the Prophet and it was given as a message to the people of Yemen. So it was given to Amr okay, to uh, give to the people of, of Yemen. And in this letter it says that none but the pure Tahir will touch the Quran. None but the pure will touch the Quran. Okay, so first of all, Let's just quickly understand where this narration comes from. This narration is a fascinating one. Remember we say that in the Sunnah and in, in the Islam, there are a number of hadith that have become controversial or there's a lot of discussion around them. But we're talking hundreds of thousands of narrations and maybe only four or five thousand of them which are authentic. Okay, Actually four or five thousand altogether. Over a hundred thousand of different narrations. And um, amongst these four or five thousand, you can actually count you know, 20, 30, 50, 100 that have some very notoriety or famous or infamous because of lots of discussion around them, lots of kind of controversy, lots of strange things, lots of very interesting things and so on. This is one of them. This is one of the famous hadith in Islam. And the reason for it is because many scholars criticized its authenticity, whereas those that defended it defended it on a very interesting basis. They defended it on the fact that it was so well known and well spread and when acted upon by the companions and tabi'een, that necessarily just the chain itself was not so important in this issue because it is so well spread. Watch what I mean. This hadith was narrated by Imam At-Tabarani and by Imam Adar al-Qutni and narrated by Imam al-Bayhaqi on the authority of the Ibn Umar and Ibn Hajar al-Asqalani, he said that this chain is not too bad. La ba'sabi, it's okay. It was also narrated, this actual letter has also been narrated by Hakim ibn Hizam and Uthman ibn Abi al-As. And it was authenticated. This hadith was authenticated by Ishaq ibn Rahway from the Imam from Al-Tabi'een and Al-Shafi'i, Imam Al-Shafi'i and Ibn Abdul Bar, who is the muhaddith of the West, the Maliki scholar. And Imam Ahmed, this is interesting, he didn't authenticate the hadith, but he acted upon it. He acted upon this hadith. This hadith also has been um, discussed, the two uh, references there. Talkhis al-Habir is, the, is the, uh, the, the best work of a hadith checking of a fiqh text by the Shafi'i school. So the... It's written by Imam Ibn Hajar. This is Ibn Hajar taking a fiqh text, a fiqh text which normally doesn't quote hadith. It just quotes facts, statements, facts, statements. And he went through it and he did the tahqiq, authenticated the hadith. 
which is a very famous, uh, it's very famous in a genre. The other mo- most, most famous book in that genre is Nasburaya, which is the other references that you can find these, these two. The reason I'm mentioning this is because these two books are very important for the Hanafi. This is the Hanafi version now. Nasburaya is the tahqiq, meaning the authentication of the hadith in which book? Al-Hidayah. The book that you might have heard of, the Hanafi fiqh book, Al-Hidayah, translated into English as well. This authentication of this book has been done by Imam Zayla'i, the author of Nasbur Raya. So Ibn Hajar is the author of Talqis al-Habir. He's a muhaddith. He authenticates the book of fiqh. And you have Imam Zayla'i, who is a muhaddith. He authenticates a Hanafi book of fiqh. Why is this important? Because the books of fiqh always come under criticism, and especially when it comes to the Hanafis. They always come under criticism. You've got weak statements, weak, no evidence, this, no that. So these two boys came along and said, right, we'll deal with this one time. Went through all of the, uh, all the statements, and for each statement produced a hadith, not only defending their position, authenticating it as well, but also the opposing opinion, looking at their opinions and bringing hadith, and either supporting their own against them, or weakening the hadith of the opposition. And remember, Zayla'i, from the Hanafi school, who was awesome at that. He did an unbelievable job, and of course he had the huge respect of Sheikh Al-Bani, who wrote about him, who said he was inspired, actually, by Azaylai. I wish I could find that, that quote, because I really enjoy uh, reading about that. That's where I picked up on Azaylai. Anyway, so this hadith, it seems from the outset that it is an authentic narration. So keep that in mind, that it is an authentic narration. What does the narration say? It says, Tahir. What does the word Tahir mean? Tahir means the one who purifies himself with water or something else, either from either to do wudu or ghusl. That's what the word Tahir means. And, um, and he says that the mu'min is a pure being. In his, in, his, in his nature. And the Mus'haf is not touched except by the, in the, in the main, غالباً إلا بالمؤمنين, except by the believers. So when we say the word إلا طاهر, the only, the pure, touch it, then we know that this is not talking about a pseudo-state of purity. Huh? Because when the, when, when it, when, if the Hadith says that none but the pure touch it, None but the pure touch it. And we know that the, it's only really the believers that are involved with the Mus'haf. It's not like an area for non-Muslims and Muslims. Then the idea is because non-Muslims are not really in the discussion, it's only referring to Muslims. Therefore, it's talking about purity within the Muslims. That's the argument that's being put forward. It's talking about purity within the Muslims. Because someone could argue, ah, hold on, this hadith is not evidence. Because the Muslim is Tahir and the non-Muslim is Najis. And therefore, this hadith means the non-Muslims shouldn't touch the Qur'an. You see what I'm saying? But a Muslim, he doesn't need wudu, he doesn't need anything, just pure by himself, let him touch the Qur'an, khalas. So what, the, the, what those people who are arguing for this, and I'm going to tell you who those people are, people who are arguing for this position, they say that, um, that only the person who has wudu must, can touch the Qur'an, they're using the fact that they're saying that this hadith can only be referring to Muslims. Anyway, and then finally, the third evidence. So first one was Quranic ayah. Second was the hadith. And the third evidence, third, third evidence is logic. Okay? Min another sahih. From just good rationale, it's obvious that there is nothing, no, 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 no kalam, no speech which exists which is more noble than the speech of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So 
If Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala made purification a obligation to make tawaf in his house and to read the book and, and so on and so forth and whatever, then to touch it, okay, to touch it must have an even, even stronger, more obvious. You must have, some people say you must have a lot to recite it. It's the, the words of Allah. So to touch it, of course, it should be like that. Anyway, main point is this. Whose position is this? That one is not allowed to touch the bushaf without wudu. This is the position of all four imams. All of the madahib is also the position of the companions. It's also the position of the companions. It has been expressly stated by Abdullah ibn Umar and by Sa'd ibn Waqas and Ali ibn Abi Talib and Shaykh Islam ibn Taymiyyah, Shaykh Islam ibn Taymiyyah, he said, he said, that not only was it stated expressly by them, but we do not have a single dissenting opinion from the companions, which of course leads to what we call a silent majority, a silent consensus. And so it's a very, very strongly held position. Right. Yes. Yes. Can the angels be to the So can angels be can they stay impure because you're putting to the people who are impure uh, only. So if they can't be impure, then there's no putting to them. Okay, so this is the position of all of the scholars, as I said, and the four imams as well. And then on the opposite side, it was one of the famous imams. His name is Dawood al-Zahiri. Okay, and he is the founder of the Zahiri Madhab, the literalist school, the school of the literalists. And he has a very interesting discussion upon this. And he's very famous in his opposition to this point. And he said, he said, it is not impermissible. It's not haram. To touch the wudu without to touch the Quran, the mushaf without wudu. What did he say? He said, first of all, my first evidence is that a person is uh, the status quo is that the there's no evidence for it. There's no direct evidence that insists that I must uh, 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 have wudu touch the Quran. Straight off, that's what he said. Secondly, he goes, let me respond to the evidences that have been said by the people. He goes, as for the ayah, then it is very very clear that the one that which is not touched is the Kitab al-Maknun, which is the preserved tablet. That's what's being referred to. And that, by the way, has been also said by the majority of Mufassirin as well. The people of Tafsir have also said the same, that that actually refers to the preserved tablet. And also there is a support of that. And remember, when we look at Tafsir, we use Tafsir to explain Tafsir. We use the Qur'an, sorry, to explain Qur'an first. Before we apply our opinion, we use another ayah of the Qur'an. So when we look at, for example, in Surah Abasa, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala talks about the Qur'an as well. He says, كَلَّا إِنَّهَا تَذْكِرَةٌ فَمَنْ شَاءَ ذَكَرَ فِي صُحُفٍ مُكَرَّمَ مَرْفُوعَةٍ مُطَهَّرَ بِأَيْدِي سَفَرَ كِرَمٍ بَرَرَ Okay? What does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala say? He says that this Qur'an in Surah Abasa, it is written... Uh, uh, written in honored, exalted, uh, exalted pure pages. Yeah, and by who? By the hands of noble and virtuous scribes. 
which is obviously not talking about the humans, but rather talking about the malaika. And that's what he says. He says that, Sheikh Uthameen, he says that this is clearly talking about the malaika. So, what we have is two comparisons. Bi'aydi safara is the same as la yamassuhu illa al-mutahharun. That the people who not, don't touch except the pure are the same as the people who are described. And that the, the suhufim, the, the, these pages which are mukarrama, is the same as kitab al-maknun, meaning referring to this, the preserved sealed tablet. The original, the lawh al-mahfuz, which is out of the range of humans. So both verses support one another and refer to them like that. Now, that's their response immediately, that's the response immediately to the ayah. They said that, as for the ayah which says, Tadzilu min Rabbil Alameen, you remember we said last week that it says Quran which is revealed by the Lord of the worlds, well that would suggest that the Quran is the one which has been sent down. Well actually, that's possible, but it's also possible that it's referring back to the original Quran, meaning in its, in its, in its, in its conceptual form. It's not a very clear evidence. And this is what Sheikh Uthameen makes a point here. He says that whenever you have possibility of understandings or possibility of interpretations from an ayah, then it's not possible then to insist upon just one. It's not possible unless there's a supporting evidence. If you have a supporting evidence that takes it the other way, meaning like towards the angels, for example, not the humans, then it's not possible for you then to say that this can only be for the Qur'an being revealed. So, so what does Sheikh say? He goes, he goes, as for the real discussion, it's got to be around the hadith. The hadith, he goes straight off, is da'if. He says, Sheikh Uthameen, he goes, his hadith is da'if. He goes, you know why it's da'if? He goes, because it is a mursal hadith. Now, a mursal hadith means that there is no companion in between the Prophet ﷺ and the tabi'i who is narrating it. There is no companion. And of course, every mursal hadith is a form of a weak hadith. So already we're in a, uh, we're already in a, a problem from, from the beginning. Then he says something very interesting. He goes, If we were just to assume for the sake of argument that it is authentic, just because it's so famous and so well known and so well spread amongst all the people, then the word in it that has been used, that the non-touch it except the tahir one, well, tahir, we know, refers, is possible to refer to pure of heart. It's possible to refer to pure of heart, pure of heart from shirk, or it could also mean pure, meaning clean. Clean body from najasa, no najasa upon the body. Or it could mean tahir from breaking wudu, ritual impurity. Meaning that there's three possibilities. It could mean the person with... Wudu, it could be a person whose body is clean from najasa, or it could mean a person who is just Muslim and free from shirk. He goes, and therefore, when we have so many possibilities, therefore it's not possible again to single out just one and say we're gonna we're gonna base it upon this and ban. Okay, and then he said also, and he goes also, Allah subhanahu wa taala says in the Quran, najas that the mushrikun are najas. And that supports the idea that if the mushrikun are najas, then the mu'mineen are tahir. And so therefore that's a contrast between the two. And the Prophet ﷺ, he also said, in al-mu'min la yanjus. He said that the believer does not become impure. So therefore this taking away of najasa from the believer obviously leaves him in a state of purity. He goes also, 
Thirdly, to use rationale, he goes, how can anyone be using rationale in this discussion? Because uh, uh, he, he goes, that's never going to be strong evidence. And by the way, Sheikh Uthameen is playing devil's advocate here, or angel's advocate, if you want to play, change the word, yeah? And he is saying, he, got, he is saying that the Zahiriya, the Zahiriya, they, uh, he goes that there's no point us going into analogy and rationale because of the literalists, they don't even accept analogy and rationale when it comes to Islamic rulings. They only go by text. That's the whole point of being a literalist, yeah? That if you don't, you don't have a text, then we're not interested. So he goes, I'm never going to bother responding to that because Allah is not even going to accept that, that straight off. Okay. He goes, my opinion, Shaykh Uthameen, alayhi rahmatullah, ilmi. He goes that their response to the ayah, talking about the Zahiris, yeah? He goes, their response to the ayah is wadih. It's as clear as the sun. And that's the, absolutely the correct response. There's no doubt about the fact that, Abu, that Dawood the Zahiri got that right. That the, that the actually use that verse and to make it out that that's referring to the believers and to make that out that that's referring to the Quran that we have is wrong and therefore the, uh, to you, the, for the majority to use all that don't, don't waste your time. He goes, forget that. He goes, I agree with them on that. He goes, I agree with them on that. He goes, huh. he goes as for the hadith of Amr bin Hazm, he goes, yes, its chain is actually weak as they have said. لكن من حيث قبول الناس له واستنادهم على فيما جاء فيه من أحكام الزكاة والديات وغيرها he goes but when we look at this hadith and how well spread it is and how well accepted it was by the tabi'een and by the early scholars of the salaf and by the imams and how they accepted this hadith and all of its rulings because this hadith is, has, is, is a long hadith it talks about uh, zakah Issues. It talks about blood money issues. It's a comprehensive letter for the people of Yemen to do with to do with the basis of their religion, the principles of their deen, and so forth. His point is is that this hadith is so well accepted, so well accepted. He goes and it, he goes, he goes. Well, hadith He goes from the time of the Tabi'een until our time now. This hadith has been accepted and acted upon, and they say and they say it has no basis. He has no basis, and it started from all the way then and until now, and it has no basis. He goes, this is yani, He goes, this is very unlikely, for, you know, to, to make such a statement. It's a very uh, inaccurate statement. Right, then he says, he goes, in this issue, he's kind of talking about his younger days. He goes, in this issue, I used to lean towards the opinion of the Zahiri Madhab. I used to lean towards the opinion of the Zahiri Madhab, meaning that it's not haram, okay? Lakin, he goes, but when I deeply thought about this whole issue, okay, when I thought about this wording in this hadith, that none touches the Quran except the pure one, and the word tahir, it is always used to refer to a person who is free from hadith, ritual impurity. It's used to refer to wudu, purity. Either you've made ghusl or either you've made wudu. He goes, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Quran, in Surah Al-Ma'idah, مَا يُرِيدُ اللَّهُ لِيَجَعَلَ عَلَيْكُمْ مِنْ حَرَجٍ وَلَكِنْ يُرِيدُ لِيُطَّهِرَكُمْ Allah doesn't want to put a difficulty upon you. Rather, what He wants to do is to purify you. Purify you. Now, He goes, وَلَمْ يَكُنْ مِنْ عَادَةِ النَّبِيِّ صَلَّى اللَّهِ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمْ أَنْ يُعَبِّرَ عَنِ الْمُؤْمِنِ بِالطَّاه
If you look at the Sunnah of the Prophet it's not his way to call the believer pure. It's not a word which he uses. If he's referring to a Muslim, he doesn't really call him um, pure because because if I because because if you want to praise him or talk about how pure he is, then we use the word iman because that's far more powerful, far more clean, far more stronger, far more important. Tabayyanali, and then it became very clear to me that it is not permissible to touch the Quran whoever does not have wudu. He, whether that is from ritual impurity of a minor one, or whether that, or like you know, a passing when going sleep, whatever, whatnot, or major sexual impurity, etc., etc. And what I depend upon in my argument is not the verses of Quran because that, that they don't have a chance, but I depend upon this hadith of Amr ibn Hazm, and that its text is very, very clear, and I am and I am happy with that. And uh, I don't want to refer to what the majority are saying uh, about the verses because the qiyas upon that is not good enough. He goes, he goes, what if someone says that the uh, letter that was let, written to the people of Yemen, were, they were not Muslims at the time. So that uh, actually that itself, is an approved, that's a, that itself is a proof that the word Tahir refers to Muslims because the letter was being sent to people who weren't Muslims. So, hey, non-Muslims, just let you know, the Quran's coming, but none are allowed to touch it except the pure. Pure, therefore, meaning Muslims. And so he goes, and the ta'abir al-kathir bin qawli sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, He goes, well, hold on. Why would it stop the Prophet from saying that none will touch the Quran except the believers? Why would he use the word pure? Why not just come out and say believers? Why would he not say people of Iman? And he goes, no, I don't think that this is, this is clear. So then he goes, He goes, after much, much thinking, and so on and so forth, it came upon me that one is not allowed to touch the Mus'haf. It's haram to touch the Mus'haf without wudu. This is the position of Shaykh Uthameen, alayhi rahmatullah. This is my position as well. This is the class position. This is not the position of our Sheikh and our teacher Sheikh Kehlan, and it never was as well. He considered it to be a a recommended action uh, only. In fact, there's no difference amongst anyone that it's a recommended act. The difference only really comes into it is that who does it obligatory or not? It is obligated by the four imams, by the companions, by contemporaries, uh, by Ibn Taymiyyah in the Middle Ages. By Sheikh Uthameen in this that in this in this time, and this is the position of the class. For those who will be checking, this will be the position of the class. Yes. Um, so would you get punished if you touched it without? Um, so we're going to talk about now all of the exceptions and covers. We just wanted to establish the ruling. Once the ruling is established in our mind, we can now talk about exceptions. Yes. Well, you see, this is a good question. Zafar says, what happened to our rule? And by that, he's talking about Sheikh Uthameen's uh, opinion. What happened to our rule that there needs to be a clear shari evidence to establish something which is haram? The answer to that is, for him, for him, this hadith, even though the Senate itself, he thought, finds it to be weak, it itself is a clear shari evidence. That la meaning that it is not permissible. 
it's a clear text for him. It is not permissible for the one who isn't Tahir to touch the Quran. Agreed, and that's what we said before. That's the difference between that's the difference between when you change the grammar between a statement of fact, as you said, taboo statement, and an order. Whereas the 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 statement in the hadith is an order. Grammatical construct of it is that it is an order, and that's the that's the clear shari evidence that Sheikh Rasulullah is looking for, and he gets in the end. I mean, as as, as he said himself, he was on the other opinion. Yeah. So if you come back to the actual ayah of the Quran, you've already said that there's differences in translation of that. It's an ambiguous statement. Not, not in translation, in interpretation. Interpretation. Yes, yes, interpretation. So you know what Ibn Taymiyyah said? Let me tell you what Ibn Taymiyyah said. Ibn Taymiyyah said also, I also uh, believe that this is referring to the angels. And I also think that the Kitab al-Maknun is referring to the preserved tablet and not the Mus'haf that we have. He said, even if that's the case, we still take the ruling from it. It's like almost to say, this is his words exactly, he goes, it's almost to say as if the Qur'an is hinting that only the pure touch it, the angels, think about that, only the, 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 uh, the pure touch it, the sacred tablet, which has the Qur'an in it, think about that, now that we're sending the Qur'an down to you. This is what Ibn Taymiyyah said. He said they establish a base principle with the kind of the foundations, the angels who are our representatives, and the Quran itself, which is represent, which is a representation of the speech of Allah in Allah al-Mahfud in the preserved tablet. And so now what we have with us, it's a kind of like a far, like a branch. So this is what Ibn Taymiyyah said. So he's not, he's also like Sheikh Uthameen. He's not going to try and pretend around it that it's you know. Referring to people, referring to the Quran, he's no, it's no, it is referring to those two, but we can still take a ruling from it ourselves. You can see that the it is the it is, you know, the main evidence is the statement of the Prophet and this clear belief amongst all the companions and tabi'een that one doesn't do it. It's like almost like a silent ishma, and it's like the done thing and the known thing. Right now, the question in now a number of masa'in. And by the way, there's an aqidah issue here as well that some of the scholars talked about. Uh, from them, Ibn Qudama. He goes that, you know, if you, know, if you get too lackadaisical with the mushaf, imagine this was a mushaf, okay, and we've got Arabic words here, right? And obviously we're going to talk about this in detail now, but if you say that it's okay to touch this without wudu, right? It's almost that you're transferring to this, like this is just ink and paper. Like mentally, you could it, it, it will lead to that. When a person starts losing respect for the actual wording itself and just seeing it like ink and paper, then it becomes for him ink and paper. Now that becomes kufr. That leads to a theological problem. Because of course the Muslims have agreed upon, Ahl Sunnah have agreed upon that the Quran is the word of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It mustn't be seen as ink and paper as such. It's the spoken words of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So it's almost what they're trying to say is that by establishing an obligating wudu for the actual physical mushaf is like almost protecting the theological nature of our understanding of the kalam of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So it doesn't become in their minds like just normal ink and paper. It's an interesting point. 
The question arises, number of questions. First question, is it haram to touch the Qur'an or is it haram to touch the Mus'haf? So the Qur'an is that which is recited. Al-Qur'an, that which is recited. Is it that which is haram or is it the Mus'haf which the Qur'an is in? So if we had it here, then... Well, why don't you just grab a Mus'haf so we can use it, uh, thingy, any, any Mus'haf. And then I can show it. Um, so... The Shafi'i say, the Shafi'i school, they said that actually what is haram is the actual letters itself, not the margins. So if the margins have got clear empty space, then those don't have a problem, whereas the words itself, those are what are haram to actually touch. So if we look at this Mus'haf here, so according to the Shafi'i uh, Madhab, then to touch the actual letters would be what is haram, and to touch these pages, and these hawamish as we call them, okay, that would be something permissible. And he says, because the hawamish are just waraq, just paper. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, بَلْ هُوَ قُرْآنٌ مَجِيدٌ Very interesting. Uh, In Surah Al-Buruj, he says, the dharf is غَرْ madruf. He goes that the, the entry is different to what it is entered into. The ayah shows that there's a difference between the two. Turn this uh, thing off. This is the thing, isn't it? The um, The um, the zarf is not the. Yeah, yeah, do you understand the point? If Allah Subhanahu wa Taala says, "Indeed, no," it is the majestic Quran which is in the preserved tablet. There's a differentiation between the two. One is in the other, and the second one was not called the Quran. The first one was called the Quran. Like saying, these are letters which are in a mushaf. This is the Quran in a collection of pages. And therefore, the Shafi'i school, they said, therefore touching the cover, touching the pages, and the hawamish, not a problem, is the letters themselves. The letters themselves. The, and they also said, uh, yeah, and then the Hanbali school, they said, it is haram to touch the mushaf, to touch, sorry, touch the, 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 the Qur'an and that which is written upon. وَمَا كُتِبَ So the full, the full mushaf entirely haram to touch except with wudu. Only it's allowed for the young one, the child, children. And they said, not the Qur'an, only for the lawh, meaning the, what did we call it again? Board. Yeah, the board. You know the board that you write Quran on? What's the actual name for it? What do we call it? Paks call it? Dakhti. Exactly. Dakhti. Yes? So the actual board that you write. And in other times it could be the blackboard as well. Okay? The small blackboard or a small whiteboard, you know, that you carry around with you or whatever. So this is, and according to the Hanbalis, they said that this is um, as long as the hands do not touch the actual letters. As long as the hands do not touch the actual letters. And that's the humbly position. And you'll find that in the reference number three there, Al-Iqna'a, which is of course the humbly fiqh book. Sheikh Uthameen, he says, there's no doubt this is a safer position. This is no doubt a safer position. He says that I prefer to have the ruling, not the Shafi'i position, but the humblies. He said that whatever follows something is itself part of it. So everything which is part is continuous 
to something takes the same ruling, not an individual ruling. That's his position. Ibn Qudama, I, do, I will say, just so that you know that there's a difference of opinion within the Hanbali madhab, Ibn Qudama actually allowed a person not to, uh, uh, not necessarily to touch the Mus'haf, but to be, for example, carrying it in this kind of manner, all right, carrying it with something separate. And of course, all the scholars allow someone with gloves, for example, to touch it. And they would often use twigs, for example, to turn pages, etc., etc., or using some kind of cloth. Also, a cover outside the cover of the norm. So this is the mushaf. And if you use one of our pack specials, you know, one of those big, thick velvet jobbies, yeah? Nice purple number. That would be great. Pink one, bonus, yeah? It isn't ghulaf. That's the word. What a word. What a word. A far underused word, that ghulaf. Oh, my days. Right, so... You know, we, when we were young, we were so ghulaf extreme. Every single book that would come home from school, it would be ghulafed up. It would be ghulafed up with the best wrapping paper, and if not, then newspaper. But we would ghulaf those books. So if we're going to ghulaf our books, yeah? Bakwas books, yeah, any nonsense. Why wouldn't we ghulaf our Quran? Huh? With the biggest velvet, yeah? Don't mess about, you know? Right, so. Okay, good. Right. Now, um... Sheikh says, he, uh, he's, he's saying, he's saying that, is it really true, can we discuss this issue about young people, because how are they going to memorize the Quran? Yani young, referring to what? What does young mean? What about those who are prepubescent children? He goes, some of the scholars said that they are not included in this because they are not mukallaf, they are not legally responsible Muslim, all right? He goes, if they're not mukallif, then how can we discuss something which is about kufr or not kufr? And uh, uh, we wouldn't... Uh, sorry, I said that wrong. He goes, if they're not legally responsible, then they can't be held for statements of kufr or not. He goes, then obviously, something less than kufr they're not going to be held responsible for. So then what about something which is a minor sin? He goes, of course it's not uh, applicable to them. And he goes, the pen has been lifted from them, as the Prophet ﷺ said. He goes, the separate question should be, is the wali, their guardian, commanded to make sure that he, so the, so the guardian has to stop the child doing it, not the child picking it up and touching it. The guardian, does he sin if he says to his kids, do what you want, knock yourself out? You know what I'm saying? So that's the real issue. Does he, does he have to? All right, that's the question. The Shafi'i school, the Shafi'i school, he says no. We, uh, 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 just like we do not obligate the uh, child to make wudu, then we do not uh, obligate him to um, touch the, uh, we don't have to prevent him from touching the mushaf either. When he doesn't have to make wudu when he's young, why are we then having to make him not touch the mushaf as well? Because he's not mukallaf. And he goes also that we're going to um, put big mushakka upon this uh, parent, and start commanding him and ordering him to do things, that which is not obligatory upon him, Aslan. It's not obligatory upon him to do that. And he goes, this would become, this would become real, a real problem. He goes, as for the most famous opinion and the well-known opinion in the Hanbali school, he goes, it is not permissible for the child to touch the Qur'an at all, as we just saw, except with wudu. And not only that, but the... Uh, and that the wali must, must... 
command the child not to do that, he'll be held sinful if he doesn't. The same way that the wali is held accountable in, uh, in, in, in obligating salah and wudu upon the child. And salah and wudu at age of seven, and then eight, and nine, and then ten. And we know that he is obligated to do that, right? And if he doesn't do that, he will be sinful. He has to follow the system. And that's before uh, uh, puberty. So he goes, this is a, the position of the um, Hanbali school. He goes, however, the Hanbali school did make an exception for the for their board. Okay? He goes, they did make a, uh, a, an exception for the board. He goes, as long as they're writing it. You see the idea of the board... You see, why is this discussion happening? It's all about memorizing the Qur'an. Now, obviously, in our time, this is not what we do. Back in the day, to memorize the Qur'an, you would hear it, learn Arabic, and then write it out. And then you would rub it off and then write it out. Now, when you're writing something, you're nowhere touching the actual words, the letters. And so they, that's why they always allow it. And they said that they just mustn't touch the actual words. And there wouldn't be a reason to. So that's how they get around this issue all the time. And um, he goes that this is very different. Um, like the Mus'haf, because the Mus'haf itself, when it is written in it, it stays there as a permanent fixture, whereas the uh, board is erased and it does, it's, not, it's not so permanent. He goes, what's similar to this, and this is interesting, this is for our discussion now about computers and so on, he goes, if a person had wrote the Qur'an the uh, wrong way round, yeah, back to front, sorry, if he wrote the Qur'an back to front, and then he held it to a mirror, then you would only read it correctly in the mirror. Yes? And he goes that, are we to say that it's haram to touch the mirror? Think about that. So if you write it back to front, and then you put it in the mirror, and now you're looking at the mirror. If we touch this mirror, is that allowed? And that's got the proper mushaf on it now. Or you're seeing an image of the mushaf, isn't it? So he said that that is something which is allowed to do. So he's trying to basically say that the, 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 the ruling for the lawh is different. He goes... It is different from the... Uh, uh, and he goes also, he goes uh, that it is different, the, the fuqaha, he said, they also said that it's not permissible to, to touch the blackboard, a subura, big blackboard or big whiteboard, upon which is written, but it is allowed to, to, to touch the letters on it, but it's allowed to write on it the same as we have with the actual uh, uh, small boards. He goes, it's important to differentiate between something large which is immobile and something which is carried around in oneself as well. So this is very, there's lots of discussions around the actual nature and appearance of this. How can I conclude this point myself? I want to conclude and say this. Sheikh Uthameen himself is clear, in my opinion, that he considers obligatory for one to have wudu before he can touch the Qur'an. I think we can agree upon that. As for now, the modern day presentations of the Qur'an, then we have different categories. We're going to look at a few uh, remaining ones. The most important... Actually, let's look what he says here. He goes, what about book of tafsir? He goes, the book of tafsir is simple. If the tafsir is more than the Qur'an, which it always is, of course, then it doesn't take the ruling of the mushaf, and it does, it's not considered a mushaf, and one is not just one's not to touch the actual words of the mushaf, but the rest of the whole book, and flicking the book, and turning the pages, and reading from it, is something which is permissible, and allowed without wudu. Why? Because a book of tafsir is not considered a mushaf. When it is majority, that would therefore be the same in our time for translation. And I believe every translation, and I had a long uh, uh, think about this 
many years ago when we started doing da'wah and giving those kind of mushafs out to other people. Um, I cannot think of any example of any mushaf translation that has both Arabic and English where the Arabic is more than the English. And so I do not consider any of those mushafs either. So, I mean, today now they do super safe and they only give out, you know, not uh, English only. I don't know about that, you know. I think that, you know, the, you know, a non-Muslim, you see a little bit of fancy behavior there, kind of adds a little bit of you know, to the English. <laughs> That's what I use. I, I, I prefer that. But I mean, you know, the, uh, to be honest, the best translations like the, you know, uh, Professor Abdul Halim Penguin one, Oxford uh, uh, print, Oxford University print, that's English only, and it looks all right. And uh, Sahih International one, which is the one which is printed now, mass. Um, it's yani. I gave one to the taxi driver yesterday, um, who brought me back from the London or the station anyway, and um, we had a little chat, this that whatever. And when I was giving it to him, I thought. So I went back and I got another book as well. It looks a bit empty, you know what I mean? Didn't look stylish enough. So I gave him a bit, a bit of that as well. Um, but I did look at it and I did think mm, a bit thin paper a bit of this that you want a little bit of you know what I'm saying so um, yeah but anyway it doesn't have the ruling of Mus'haf Tafsir does have a ruling of Mus'haf question is what about when it's 50-50 imagine we have a scenario where it's 50-50 what do you think you said before that you know, any piece of paper you can buy it does ruling of Mus'haf uh huh so would that not include in there in, 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 what, in the 50-50 you mean? No, no, even the, the first of you gave. Like, what did we say? Ayah by itself. Remember? In the definition, I made it very, very clear to say that any piece of paper where it's only the ayah by itself, if it's torn or a page, that gets the ruling of the mushaf. But if it's a page, okay, like a letter, and the evidence for this, by the way, the evidence, if you're thinking, what's the evidence for this, is the letter that he wrote to Caesar. Prophet's letter that had the Quran in it, how only an ayah, but the letter was not considered like a mushaf. It was spread and carried by everyone and so on and so forth. So that's where the, the, the theory comes from. That's the evidence, I mean. So today, if a book is 50, so I've made it very clear. The question is 50-50. What do you give 50-50 to? Always when you're in 50-50 and there's a, there's a possibility of haram, then you put the haram forward. Because the issues about haram halal is not an issue about something else or something else. It's like, is it haram or is it not? So you give the haram the precedent. Now, let's quickly finish this discussion with the Mus'haf on smartphones and apps. The real issue is this now. Is it permissible for a person who doesn't have wudu to use a Mus'haf on a tablet or a iPhone? Answer is yes, because that doesn't necessarily mean you touch it. Like a computer, for example, Quran Explorer on your laptop, you press the button to next page, next page, next page. So that's not a problem to actually physically carry around the whole computer and so on, and a tablet if you've got a button. The real issue comes, the real issue comes, because when you're swiping on it. So now we have to decide that the screen upon which the letters appear, is this something which is the actual letters, or is it the same ruling as the mirror? So I'd like to open that up for discussion, because no scholar can give you a, 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 an answer on that. They'll give us subjective understanding based upon what they think. Everyone agrees that a mirror is not a mushaf. And you should also know that the basic ruling of a mushaf is given to anything upon which the verses are written on, and written means inscribed. Richard, this doesn't mean just ink. Back in the day, at the time of the Prophet, 
It was inscribed in, parch, in, in thick parchment, wood, on bone. It wasn't written in ink. And it was not, I mean, not all of it was written in ink. And so the ruling is about things which are exclusively Quran inscribed or written. So the question is now, what is the nature of the screen? What's the nature of the screen? It's a liquid crystal display, liquid crystal display which therefore means... Uh, which is a liquid which uh, with the gases forms the letters. Uh, it's just light, isn't it? Yeah. It's light. I mean, when you look at that, what do, you, what do you think? What's the first thing that comes to you when you see that? Well, firstly, it will remain there like that, what they think, and disappear. It will go away. The light will disappear from there. So when I swipe that, it moves. It's gone. Then it's the next page. Then it's the next page. Huh? You mean the screen is something which is on top? And what are you? You're not actually touching something? What are you touching? Are you touching that letter? I think you are, you know. This is an LCD screen, yes? Liquid crystal. Liquid crystal is something which is a... It's not, it's not an image. It's not, sorry, it's not a... Um, it's a substance, isn't it? By the way, I don't know. I'm asking the question here. Is it not a substance? Which, for example... I'm, I'm just saying that because I get this idea that if I press it really, really hard, then it starts to bleed. You know what I mean? Is that, is that me dreaming or not? No? You know when a pixel... It deforms the whole... It deforms the matrix. So... There is actual liquid. Definitely. So, yeah, where does the liquid come from, right? LCD. So I get that feeling, and I've seen it, when you press really, really hard, there's liquid. So I'm saying to you that it's possible to say that this screen is touch-sensitive or pressure, whatever it's called, yeah? And so when you're, when you're pressing down and it recognizes, I think it does heat recognition as opposed to anything else, but whatever it is, it's your finger touching a screen which is pressurized on a pixel which is touching some form of electric con connection which is touching the liquid itself or whatever that creates light. I think it's covered by a gorilla glass, isn't it? So I think it's underneath. It? But it's all connected, touching, 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 touching. It's not directly linked to finger touching the glass. It's like wearing a glass. It's like wearing a glass. Because press your phone. It's like having a cover over the table. Yeah, exactly. If that screen is. Like a mushaf which is laminated? Yep. That's a good point, right? If the screen cracks, you can actually still see the words underneath it without distortion. Just the screen is cracked. It can affect as well. It can affect, okay. So another question has come to mind. If I was to laminate this Quran, would you touch it? Let's have a vote. Let's have a vote. Let's have a vote. If this, if this was laminated, put your hands up if you touch it. Put your hands up. Hi, so I can see confident thingy. <laughs> no, 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 no. Technically, we're talking about because there's no doubt that Muslims should always have wudu for Quran. No doubt. Seven. The rest of you, then I'm saying that no, uh, yes, sorry. The rest of you saying you wouldn't. Yeah? Wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't. Wh why not? Too close? Doesn't feel right? 
Because it's touching, absolute touching. It's part, 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 part of it. Especially if you follow the humbly kind of position. It's been touching and fused. It's become fused to it. So is that better or worse? Worse than isn't it? Because it's fused now. Whereas a glass lies over something, whereas that isn't. Yes, yeah, that's saying basically that's even worse. Meaning that, meaning even more haram. His point because because the glass at least is a barrier. Because whereas that laminate is like proper into it now. It's fused. So it's like even more part and parcel of the... But does, that, does the laminate not still count as a layer? If it didn't count as a layer, why is it that the scholars themselves consider this front page to be part of the Mus'haf? We shouldn't be touched. It's like, it's not possible for us to, according to the Shafi's, in the majority in fact, to walk around the Mus'haf like this. You see? And say that I'm not touching the Mus'haf. They consider all this to be connected. The Shafi'is would, Shafi'is would say, right, okay, the Qur'an only starts there, right? The Qur'an is only this, like that, okay? Whereas to hold it in this manner, it wouldn't be. So for, for that reason, then, sorry, the humbling uh, position is I can tell you now that the, the, the scholars that are giving fatwa on this are not giving it based upon madhab. They're giving it using madhabs to help them because this is a new scenario. Yeah. What about... So that's a good that's a good point, right? He's saying the brother's saying, what if we treat it as tafsir as a phone which has so, so much other things, and in fact the program itself probably has more pages of tafsir than it has mushaf. The reason that's not applicable here is because what you're actually seeing is just nothing but mushaf. It's like that's it, pure mushaf in front of you. That's the same ruling as is it allowed to take this to the toilet with this showing? You see? That's interesting. All of us are like, whoa, you know, just want to slow down there. You know what I mean? <laughs> We're not doing that. But no one says a problem if we turn it off and then take it to the toilet because it's all gone off the screen. It's nowhere there, nowhere near, etc. Yeah. I was going to say it's primarily a phone so it can display, come on, etc., etc. So that's the argument, like primarily a mirror. And then it shows, yeah. What letters itself? Yep. But the other side is more about permanency. So, like I said, if you put the laminate cover on it, it's become permanent. Yep. So it depends which side you want to sit on. If you consider you know, you know that it's about the layers, then you, you, you wouldn't touch it. Yep. You, you can actually swipe out on the top of the bone without actually touching the pages. <laughs> Shut up, man. Yeah, you can do, yeah. That's all the problem. No, it doesn't. Yeah, of course it doesn't, yeah. <laughs> which program are you on? I'm on. Uh, <coughs> But two, isn't it? Oh, it does, you're right. <laughs> That's a good one, yeah. Look, yeah. If you actually go to the bottom, it changes the page. Yeah, touching it, yeah, but uh, look, I mean, look. <coughs> Not touching the words. So I want you to know that there is an acceptable difference of opinion there, okay? And I have to say that my heart, no, my mind is that it's not Mus'haf. And that I believe that it can be used. And I believe that it can be touched. Uh, but my heart says, no, that there should still be wudu. My heart says, it, no doubt it should be it's safer. 
But obviously, if we are able to change the page, for example, by pressing, you know, one button or whatever, yeah, then then there's not a, there's not a, there's not an issue. If you're able to avoid the words itself, then it's not an issue. The safe position is obviously to treat it like that, and there's no no doubt about that. I can tell you, uh, Sheikh Kehlan himself, long time ago, he gave he his opinion was that it is um, it takes the ruling of a mushaf. Which is ironic because Sheikh Ihlan doesn't see it obligatory to have wudu for the mushaf anyway. Right? So, so, so make it clear. He doesn't believe it's obligatory. But as every scholar does, everyone believes it's, it's sunnah. It's good. Likewise, he says, Quran, this is the same as that. He goes, anything which the, the, the Quran appears upon takes the ruling of the Quran. Now that's a nice, easy, safe principle to have. It's a nice, safe, easy principle to have. The real issue is, is that Ethically, should we th- be thinking like that? Are we trying to do like a, some kind of Jewish number on that? You know, you know when we kind of say that yeah, it's not really the kind of Quran. You know, fish on the Friday, not fish on the Saturday. Right. But you wouldn't take it to the toilet, yeah. But then you wipe the whole, clean it, clean the blackboard, yeah. Then you know you could technically take that to the toilet because it's now got nothing on it. So isn't mm. it the same as the phone that you've got it on Maybe. at one point in time? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yep. Um, just going back to the issue where uh, the, the laminate was good. Laminate, yeah, laminate. Um, well, the Hanabula said that what it's written upon. So the, it's not written on the laminate, but it's written on a piece of paper. So like the velvet, like covering that, basically still covering the letters, but you're not actually touching the letters, but not written upon it. That could be an argument, yeah. That the barrier is something which is on top and not underneath, not parts of it. That's possible, yeah. When you take the feelings out of this, for example... Take the feelings, you mean take the packness out of it, you mean, yeah? <laughs> yeah, that's what I see. Yeah. yeah. Is, for example, if you projected the Qur'an... If you projected the Qur'an onto a wall... Would you say that to go... Yeah, no one's going to say that, yeah? No one's going to say that the Qur'an is... That the wall is haram to touch. I don't even think... Apart would probably... I know. I don't think so. These are all projections. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, no, I, 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 I genuinely think that there is there are good arguments for both sides. My position is this, is that it's always best to have wudu, no doubt. And by the way, we're talking about touching, we're not talking about reciting, yeah. What about the general handling, lying on the shelf, moving it from one cover to another cover? By cover, then that's the same. But if it has a cover around it, then... So, I mean, like I said, I think they should be recommended for everyone. And the class position is that it's the, the general ruling. I mean, it's not about the text here. But I, I personally think that we should always be on the safe side of that, that issue. But we wouldn't criticize someone who, doesn't, who, who didn't do it because of the khilaf in the issue. <coughs> Listen, we're going to stop there because I have to just finish off this chapter. <coughs> okay, so, Salah. Salah, the next one, and it is impermissible. What's the text? <coughs> this chest is going to kill me, man. 
It is impermissible for one without wudu to touch the mushaf or to pray. Or to pray. Okay? So the prayer is forbidden for the muhdith. Why? Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, When you stand for prayer, then wash your face. And then it's very clear that to, from the from the Quranic ayah, if you want to pray, you've got to make wudu. That's absolutely clear. We've done all that. And uh, subhanAllah, he makes a point here. And this is something which we need to spend a few minutes on. He said, he goes, this is clear that this is a condition. Therefore, it is not permissible for a Muslim to pray whilst he does not have wudu. Now you might think, okay, well that's obvious. But it's not obvious. How many people do you know that do that once they've broken their wudu? Maybe they pass wind in the prayer and they're too embarrassed. And that embarrassment then keeps them there in that position and they carry on praying. What's the ruling upon that person? Sheikh says, he goes, it's this, he goes, this is, according to some of the scholars, istihza, meaning it, it is a mocking the prayer, mocking the prayer. And there is absolutely no doubt this person becomes kafir by that. Kafir. فَهُوَ كَافِرٌ لِاسْتِهْزَائِهِ وَإِنْ كَانَ مُتَهَاوِنًا فَقَدْ اِخْتَلَفِ الْعُلَمَ رَحْمُهُمُ اللَّهِ تَكْفِيرِهِ He goes, if this person is mocking the prayer, right, so let me just make this clear, hold on. A person who prays the prayer, this is not the same one as the one who passes when he is embarrassed, is a person who prays the prayer without wudu. To mock the prayer, this is, he's a kafir. Like, you know, whatever. I don't need to make wudu or whatever, I don't know. He goes, as for the one who is not wanting to do it, either because he's ashamed or embarrassed or he doesn't, or he's not aware or whatever. Yeah, and it was sinning or he wants to, but he can't be bothered. That's the other one, yeah. He wants to, but he can't be bothered to go to the, you know, to the, to the toilet, or it's far away, like in a haram, yeah? And he can't, you know, continue now, you know, whatever. He goes, the ulama differed over whether he's a kafir or not. So you do understand the seriousness of the discussion. They differed, fi takfirihi. So the madhab of Abu Hanifa is that he is not to be excommunicated. He is not kafir. Okay. لِأَنَّ مَنْ صَلَّ وَهُوَ مُحْدِثٌ مَا عِلْمِهِ بِإِجَابِ اللَّهِ الْوَضُوءِ فَهَذَا كَالْمُسْتَحْزِئِ وَالْإِسْتِهْزَاءِ Sorry, sorry, I read that completely wrong. He is kafir. He is kafir, sorry. He is kafir. Because he says that there's no doubt about the mustahzi, the one who mocks it. Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has made it very, very clear in the Qur'an, Surah Tawbah, قُلْ أَبِ اللَّهِ وَآيَاتِهِ وَرَسُولِهِ كُنْتُمْ تَسْتَهْزِئُونَ was it Allah and His signs and His messenger that you're mocking at? لا تعتذروا no excuse قد كفرتم بعد إيمانكم you have disbelieved after you had faith. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala Abu Hanifa said whoever prays whilst he doesn't have wudu knowing that Allah has obligated wudu for that prayer is like the one who mocks the prayer. So he's taking a hardcore hardcore approach. As for the madhab of the three imams they said that no, it is not kufr because it's a major sin. And And he goes that the one, he goes, it's not possible. And this is, the, of course, the, the class position and it's the correct position. He says, it's not necessary that to say, it's not that not, not, he doesn't rationally lead on that the one who doesn't make wudu and pray, that doesn't mean that he's mocking. It means other things. Like we just said, embarrassment, shame, 
whatever, whatnot. And kufr has to be something you believe. You know, you know when we talk about kufr, it has to be something you believe. It can't be mistakes and, and shame and embarrassment and things like that. Right. He goes, so our position, Shaykh goes, he goes, he prays without wudu. Mocking the prayer, he's kafir. And if he doesn't, then he's not kafir, but he is in big trouble. All right. The second he goes, the second evidence for the prayer is the hadith. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does not accept the prayer except without purification. This hadith has been narrated by Muslim, by Imam Muslim. And then the hadith which is narrated by Imam Ahmed, that there is no prayer without purification. And then in another hadith which is narrated by Imam Bukhari, like, Allah does not accept the prayer of any one of you, and if you have broken your wudu, until you make wudu. So, very, very clear. And then the third evidence, ijma'ah. The entire nation of the Muslims have agreed that it is haram for the muhdith to pray without, without wudu. He goes, the real issue that we need to talk about is to define what prayer is. That's a real discussion. Everyone's thinking about prayer and, and that's the end of it. No, he goes, we should define what prayer is. He goes, well, the prayer that the Prophet ﷺ told us about was the prayer that starts off with takbirat al-ihram, Allahu Akbar, and it ends with taslim, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. Regardless of how many ruku'ah or sujood they are in, therein. That is what the prayer of the Prophet ﷺ is talking about. So what kind of prayer are those? The five daily prayers, Jum'ah, the two Eid prayers, the prayer for rain, the prayer for the eclipse and the funeral prayer, and he goes, and the, he goes, and the funeral prayer, and he repeats, and the funeral prayer, because the janazah opens up with a takbir and it ends muhtatimatun bi taslim, and therefore, according to the Sharia, it is what we call a prayer. Why does he make that point? Because there's no sujood in it. Why else, and why else does he make that point? Because Abu Hanifa does not consider, as does Ibn Taymiyyah, by the way, they both did not consider Salatul Janazah as Salah. Huh? They did not consider it to be a Salah. They considered it to be a Dua. Okay? A Dua. And there's some discussion about that. But anyway, watch this. Okay? So, some of the scholars, they said, no, in the Salah, they said that no, a prayer must have ruku and sujood. And others said that it must be a prayer that has two units or more. And, 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 uh, they said that it must be two units or more, other than witter. Witter is an exception, that's allowed as well. Sheikh Uthameen says that the first position is the correct one. That the salah is something which opens with takbir, ends with the taslim, doesn't matter whether it has, whether it has ruku', sujood, zero or twenty. But if it begins with takbir and ends with taslim, and it has words in between and actions in between in a set order, it is considered to be a prayer. You may be thinking, why is this discussion happening? And the answer is, because we want to try to understand the ruling for sajdat al-tilawa and sajdat al-shukr. That's got to be the discussion, isn't it? You see people doing that all the time. The real question is, that do they need to have wudu for those? So, so the uh, first of all, he says in our madhab, the Hanbali madhab, he goes that salah definitely opens up with takbir and it ends with taslim. It ends with taslim. When he had yushra in them and you kept it in the sajda when they rafa, when you send them. 
وبناء على هذا يحمل المحدث يسجد للتلاوة أو شكر وهو غير طاهر. He goes therefore. This is very interesting. He goes in the humble madhab. We they consider they consider sajda shukr and sajda tilawa to be prayers. So that means that you have to say Allahu Akbar when you make it and do the sajda and give the salam. So you got to go Allahu Akbar, make the sajda and give salam, and you have to make wudu. That's the humbly position for the sajda of tilawa and sajda shukr. What is sajda tilawa? Sajda tilawa is when you come across a verse of the Qur'an in which the scholars have agreed that one should make a prostration upon after you read it, of which there are 15 in the Qur'an. What is a sajda to shukar? The sajda shukar is the prostration for thankfulness, which is what someone does if they hear some brilliant news or something harmful has been kept away or some great stuff, etc. That's what those, those two are. According to the Hanbalis, you've got to go, Allahu Akbar, go down, do it, and give salam, and you have to have wudu. The real question is that Shaykh Uthameen is trying to say, he goes that if you'd really think about this though, you'll see that the sunnah indicates that actually they are not prayers. They are not prayers. Why? He goes, the first evidence is that the Prophet ﷺ would make sajda for tilawa all the time and it has not been narrated that he used to make takbir, Allahu Akbar, when he would go down for sajda or when he would come up and we do not know that he ever gave the salam. Except in one hadith which is narrated by Imam Abu Dawood in which he made a takbir on the way down but not on the way back up. This is actually my own personal position as well. But yani, because um, when you're praying with packs, you know, they get a bit heart attack so you should yani, give the other one. Yeah, so, so, you know, but I remember once doing, I mean, I, I, for years, I remember 15 years you know, leading salah and for years I carried on doing that that I would stick to this position very strictly. That Allahu Akbar, upon going down, and why is that by the way? The hadith Abu Dawood, okay, um, is narrated as is there, uh, by Abdul Razak, uh, on, the, on the authority, uh, and by Abu Dawood, in the book of Salah, and it is narrated on the authority of Nafi', on the authority of Abdullah bin Umar, that he said that the Messenger of Allah was reciting Quran to us, and when he would come across, uh, when he would come across a sajda, he would make takbir kabbara wa sajda wa sajdna. He would make takbir, and he would go to prostration, and we would go to prostration as well. The muhakkik says that the narrator, they're one of the people in the Senate called Abdullah bin Umar al Umari. He is weak, and Imam al Nawawi said that this hadith is also has a weak chain. So this hadith is considered weak. Anyway, I used to act by this hadith. All right, meaning that the go down, and then, even actually I didn't like to say takbir on the way down. Like, what is clear from the Prophet ﷺ, that he never used to. This is the only hadith which says he did. But I said, okay, I'd act upon this hadith, so I'd make takbir going on the way down, like you see all packs do. On the way back up, I couldn't justify it. I said, if they hear the recitation, it's obviously going to stand back up, isn't it? Because you're praying, isn't it? If, you've come, if you're, come, you're praying, and you come to a verse in the Qur'an, Okay, first I couldn't even understand why I'd have to actually make takbir. If I go down, it should go down. Right? But then I thought, yeah, you know what makes sense, sisters, people in the back can't see. So I'll say, Allahu Akbar, long, loud, extra one, go down. But if I come back and I say, يعني, I carry on reciting, you'd expect people to stand up. And I did it once and everyone was still in sajda. <laughs> Everyone stood in sajda, 10 seconds, 15 seconds, 20 seconds, and then subhanAllah was saved by one guy, 
One guy, Muskeen, he just like said, you know what, forget it, I'm going to do it. So he stood up. So when he stood up, everyone else stood up. So then I turned around and I said, come on guys, man, when I said reciting, what were you guys, we didn't know you never said Allah Akbar. I said, what are you talking about? You're going to be following me, man, not following my, my, my statements. Yeah, anyway, so, um, but after that I said, you know what, I'm going to say Allah Akbar on my way back up. Anyway. Huh? This is 60 hours, so yes, yes, correct, correct, yes, uh, well said. This is obviously only if the Sajdatilawa comes in the Salah. So this uh, issue is just talking about if a person is reading Quran, should he just say Allah Akbar or not? The correct position is if I'm reading Quran now and I come across Sajda, I just go down. There's no Allah Akbar on the way down, there's no Allah Akbar on the way up, and there's no Salam at all. That's the correct Sunnah, okay? That's the first thing. The Prophet ﷺ, second, second evidence, the Prophet ﷺ, he did sajda in Surah Al-Najm, and the Muslims and the Mushrikeen, they made sajda with him. And the Mushrik, he can't even do a prayer. So therefore, and the Prophet ﷺ never said anything against them. Anyway, this is a weak evidence, of course. And, and Shaykh Al-Tameen says, if you really think about it, there's not really good, strong evidence. Anyway, he says, he goes, the person who thinks about it, the, the, if the person thinks about the Prophet's sajda for shukr, then it will become very clear that he doesn't make any takbir. Meaning that if you look at every single time that he made sajda shukr, there's no narration takbir. So basically, his evidence is that whenever the Prophet did either, it was never done. He goes, therefore, it is very, very clear for me that one does not, it is not haram. A person does not need to have wudu to do sajda tilawa or sajda shukr, even though it is recommended, of course, to have wudu, like it is always recommended to have wudu, because to make zikr, it is always good to have wudu. He goes, however, it's not haram, and this is a position of Ibn Taymiyyah, and it is also authentically narrated from Abdullah ibn Umar ibn al-Khattab, radiallahu an, that he would make the sajda of tilawa without wudu at all. And he goes, this is something which is a, a, a clear... Uh, point. And he goes that if you also think about it, this makes sense because you will lose the, the uh, uh, especially in Sajjah Shukar, you don't have to go, you just heard great news, you think to yourself, let me just quickly go and make wudu, then you might get hooked up in the bathroom, and then you know, whatever, blah, 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 then you might want to go to the toilet, and then all the excitement then drains out, yani, you know, and then the excitement's gone, and you come back out and say, that wasn't all that good news anyway. <laughs> <laughs> you miss out on the good moment and so it's all over yeah so anyway I think this is a good position I'll tell you something interesting this is the longest lesson in history by the way yeah people are dying by the way yeah that's okay I'm alright that's alright I'm the ill one okay and I'm against the hard pillar and you guys have got like a thousand chairs you can use some of the clever packs there they're sitting on chairs and you guys are just sitting on the floor you should yeah, and you sit on a chair as well why not <laughs> Um, because at home they're sitting on sofas, they're chilling, they're drinking tea, this, that, whatever. You can watch it at home if you want. You get more ajar here though. Anyway, what was I going to say? Uh, I remember when <laughs> Pakistan was a World Cup, they won the World Cup? No, it was T20 Cup. The T20, what was that? When was that? 2000, and, no, it wasn't long ago. 2006? 6? 7? 8? Something like that. Eight or nine when they won the T20, and they all went into sajda, and they all went in all kinds of directions. <laughs> yeah, one went this way, one went that way, this that whatever, blah blah. And uh, then there was this big discussion. I remember writing an article on my blog then next day, 
I said, you know, they followed the Sunnah, to be honest. No Qibla needed, no Udu needed, just do it there and then. Says the Shukr. Oh, I attacked so much. Oh, until your Wahhabi, you are this, that, blah, blah. Anyway, alright, so that's good. Then finally, um, finally, finally. Obviously, I said the Tilawa, if it's in the Quran, if it's in the Salah, you must have wudu because you have to be praying, yeah? I just saw, I just mentioned that just in case. Uh, okay, finally, Tawaf. Now, Tawaf is something which, according to a number of scholars, it is not permissible to do around the house, the Kaaba, whether it is in Hajj or Umrah, or just general visiting, unless you have wudu. It doesn't matter what day it is, in Hajj, outside of Hajj. Why is that? Because the Prophet ﷺ, it has been narrated by in Bukhari, that when he wanted to make tawaf, he would make wudu and then make tawaf. First evidence. Second evidence, the hadith of Safiyyah. When it was said to him, وسلم, that Safiyyah, she's menstruating. And then he did not know that he thought, he thought that that means that she has not done tawaf al-ifadah in hajj, which is the main tawaf. So he said, Oh, she's holding us back then? Holding us back then would suggest what? That if she's menstruating, then that means that she can't do the tawaf al-ifadah. She's part of our caravan, therefore she's going to hold us back. Okay? Um, and obviously, if she's menstruating, that means she's uh, in a state of, she's muhtif, muhtitha, she's not in a state of tahara. And number three evidence, hadith of Aisha. And the Prophet ﷺ told her when she was menstruating, do everything that you would that the normal hajj would do, just don't make the tawaf. Do everything that normal hajj would do, just don't make the tawaf. Which is obvious, obviously, which is trying to say, you know. Second, fourth, the, the statement of the Messenger of Allah ﷺ, bayt salah, illa kalam, illa that tawaf around the house is a prayer. Other than the fact that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has allowed you to speak in it, so only speak good therein. Only speak good therein. So if it's a salah, then of course it should be having wudu. This has been narrated by Imam Tirmidhi, and you will find out in a minute. Uh, oh yeah, and finally, uh, the fifth uh, 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 evidence is that they said, as Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in Surah Al-Baqarah, وَأَهِدْنَا إِلَى إِبْرَاهِيمِ إِسْمَعِيلِ أَنْ طَهِّرَ بَيْتِ لِلطَّائِفِينَ وَالْعَاكِفِينَ وَالْرُكَعِ السُّجُودِ And we told, and we, we made it obligatory upon Ibrahim and Ismail to purify the house for the people of Tawaf, people who are going to stay, and the people who are going to uh, bow and prostrate. And so they've said, that if you have to make the house pure, then of course the people who go in should also be pure. These are the five evidences that they used. Some of the scholars said, no. That there is no condition of purity for tawaf. Not condition. Meaning there's no doubt it's good, but it's not a condition. And it's not haram. And if you make a wudu, then it's going to be more perfect and more brilliant. They said, what's the evidence? They said, first of all, that there is no evidence clear that the Prophet ﷺ has said that the tawaf will not be accepted out. Yani he said, never in his life did the Prophet ﷺ say, Allah will not accept the tawaf from someone who does not have wudu. That's the clear line they're looking for, the killer line. It's not there. They said, let's re- respond to the evidences. First one, the Prophet ﷺ making wudu before tawaf was just to recommend it. No evidence to obligate it. Just to show that it is recommended. They said the hadith of Aisha and the hadith of 
Sophia just shows that the people of uh, uh, of menstruation they are the ones that are holding them back not because of the fact that of the tawaf but because the menstruating women are not allowed to go into the masjid so because they can't go into the masjid meaning the kaaba towards the kaaba then they can't even make the tawaf so it's yeah, it's working backwards almost yeah working backwards the the uh, the hadith of uh, that we said that there is that the tawaf Round the house is a prayer. He goes, this is not a hadith which is authentic. And in actual fact, this is a statement of Abdullah ibn Abbas. It's not a hadith. Who agrees with him on that? If we go back and we look at it, it was considered to be a statement of Ibn Abbas, a weak hadith of the Prophet an authentic statement of Ibn Abbas by Imam al-Nasai, by al-Bayhaqi, by Ibn Salah, al-Mundhari, and Imam al-Nawawi. So therefore they said it's a weak hadith. As for those that said it, is risen, uh, it has been risen to the Prophet ﷺ, meaning it is a hadith, that was Ibn Sakan, Ibn Khuzayma, Ibn Hibban, Ibn Hakim, and Ibn Hajar. Shaykh Uthameen says, there are many reasons for the weakness of this hadith. Forget the chain, look at the text. The text says that the, what? That the wafer around the house is a prayer. So don't speak except good in it. He goes, well of course, yani, it's not, that's, that's, not, that's not a correct metaphor. It's not a prayer because you can walk in it. It's not a prayer because you can eat in it. It's not a prayer because you can drink in it. He goes, this kind of statement can't come from the Prophet It's a big, big call what he said there. But he's just basically trying to say that it's contradictory. It's contradictory. Anyway, he goes, as for the ayah, he goes that, you know, that Ibrahim and Ismail were told to purify the house. That, does, that doesn't prove anything. doesn't mean that a person has to make wudu. It could mean he has to be clean as well. Or it could just mean that a person's clean. He goes... The uh, 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 house is been make it clean, yes. Make the house clean for who? For ataifin, yes. People make tawaf. Who else? The the people in itikaf and the people who pray. Is it permissible for a person to go into the masjid for itikaf and he doesn't have wudu? Is it possible for a person? Yes. The answer is yes. Is it possible for the one who is about to go and pray to go into the house and, and not have wudu? Yes, it's allowed for him. So they said, just like it's allowed for the second, third and fourth category, it's also allowed for the one who's making tawaf. Therefore, therefore, Sheikh Uthameen, he says, therefore, we, uh, his opinion is that the wudu is not a condition for tawaf, which let me tell you, brothers and sisters, is a massive statement. And, and, if that is correct, and it's certainly his position, and I have to say that I lean towards it, okay? Even though there's no doubt, as Shaykh Uthameen says as well, that to make the heart make wudu is so much better. But if you have that, that is an absolute game changer when it comes to Hajj and Umrah. I'll tell you that right now. Okay? Game changer when it comes to Hajj and Umrah. Um, because Sa'i doesn't need wudu at all. It's outside the masjid anyway, Okay? It's running between two hills, and what you need to do for that for, yeah? Okay? So, uh, that's that. But tawaf not either, then it's a big, big difference. Big difference. That actually takes out wudu from most of the actions, other than the prayers. Okay? Now, Sheikh finishes off this chapter. Where did I do Okay? Where did I? I know you're dying, yeah? But that's okay. Sometimes you need to die like this, yeah? Last two lessons were only like 45, 50 minutes, yeah? Chip, chop, chop. So we gave you everything in one lesson, super lesson we'll call it. And we haven't even started the questions yet. <laughs> <laughs>
And then he goes that if um, the, the only question that's remaining is the following. If your woman is there with you, any woman, and she is menstruating, and it's hajj time, and the bus is about to go, and she just started, and it can't delay, what happens? And the scholars talked about it, talked about it, talked about it. And basically, to summarize, um, Sheikh Uthameen goes with the position of Ibn Taymiyyah, which is the position that I also give ruling by. And that is a position where the majority of modern day, modern day scholars give fatwa by, which is the due to the necessity, due to the rura, <coughs> it's allowed for her to make the tawaf in her current state because she has no other option, otherwise she will miss hajj, otherwise she will miss umrah, what is she going to do miskina? And, uh, you know, she's done everything, paid everything, then she's going to go home and come back with nothing, yani. So this is the position of Sheikh Islam, and he goes, this is correct. Lakin yajibu alayha, and yeah, yeah. And then he basically says something which, you know what, sisters find really offensive, but it has to be said, that they must not soil the masjid, where good sanitary pads, basically, is what he says. And that is the end of the chapter of Nawaqin al-Wudu. Those things which invalidate the wudu. And I'm sure that we will have a nice summary of that available for you by next week as well, inshallah. And that is the end of the lesson for those who uh, want to go, because I know that that's a killer. And for those who want to stay, then there will be some questions that are going to be coming up on the screen, which I agreed to answer which was about the most stupidest thing I could ever have done in my life, I think. Okay? Because... 160 comments. 160. Good luck to you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Right, okay. So... Go right out the bottom. Go right out the bottom. So, there's the bottom, the latest ones. Sorry, harassing me at the beginning. Listen, man. So, so did you that. not... Uh, I didn't tell them, isn't it, that they should start a thing. You should get a chair, by the way. Believe me. Yeah. Don't turn it down now, Shaz, because you'll be cutting afterwards. Let's take a couple of questions first on what we've said, and then we'll do the questions on Salaam. By the way, those who are watching, I made it very, very clear that the only questions that were going to be entertained were those that were on Salah that were not answered, not on anything else, because the first question I can see is them talking about haram to shave the beard and whatever, yeah? <laughs> and so, yeah, basically this is people coming in and say, yeah, let's have yeah, a party and ask what we want, do what we want. Which would be very, very wrong. So, first of all, questions on the class. Yes. Oh, I, I want to ask the class position of the kids touching the mushaf. So, I believe that it is permissible for kids to touch the mushaf, and that they should be asked to make wudu as much as possible, but that it is not, it is, is not haram for them because they are not mukallaf. They don't have to cleave. You know what I mean? They don't. They don't. They don't have to. Yeah. Yeah. To the age of puberty. Yeah. I'm going to ask you, if you take a picture of the Mus'haf of an ayah, or if you take a picture of a building with the Mus'haf written on it, would that count as the same as the mirror, or is that...? I think mirror. What else could it be? I mean, I think it has to be the mirror, if you take a picture of the Mus'haf, yeah. Then. Um, yes, the sujood tilawat there, just to clarify for them. So, when you're reading Qur'an, basically, it's not Allah Akbar on the way down or up. No, Allah Akbar on the way down. No, Allah Akbar on the way up. And certainly no, uh, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. When it comes to comes to the sajda tilawa, now I just want you to make it. I just want to make it very clear that there's a big difference between reciting Quran 
and touching the Quran. So to recite the Quran, I just want you to know that for everything, for everything to do with the Quran and deen and dhikr, wudu is legislated. You should make wudu for every dhikr, for every dhikr. And that's every act of ibadah. The, our question is not about that. Our question is what is it a condition for? What is obligatory? When do we sin? And so when we talk in those kind of black and white terms, we have determined that to recite the Quran is something which is permissible for the one who does not have wudu, no problem. To touch the physical Quran, you should be having wudu. You should be having wudu. When it comes to the uh, reciting of the Quran by heart, an ayah of uh, sajda comes along, and you make the, the sajda, you won't have uh, wudu, and it's not a problem. But if you are reading from the Quran, we said that you must be actually having wudu, so you would have wudu for sajda tilawah anyway. I just want to make that very, very clear. Yep. Well, it's, uh, if you listen to the CD and uh, the Tawah comes again again, or when you're memorizing the Quran, yes. you sit in the one place. Yes, the ruling of, of that, okay, because well, mm-hmm. I don't want to get into that because the sajda tilawah and sajda shukar has its own section, which is later. But yes, you can recite it 50 times and only make one sajda because you're learning it. Because you're learning it, yes. At one sitting, yeah. You Right there and then you're reciting the same ayah, you only make one sajda shukr. Um, so, will we, will the Muslims ever touch Lohan <laughs> Will the Muslims ever touch the Lohan Mahfuz, Zafar? What do you think? No. No. Zafar said no. <laughs> They're talking about the angels. We're saying that uh, the only the people that only will the only beings that will touch it will be the angels. Okay, all right. So I just want to make it very clear that there are questions here. Start from the bottom, right from the bottom. Right, we're going to go right to the bottom. So I'm going to make it very very clear what I'm going to do. Okay. First of all, again, I emphasize if you wish to go home then you are completely free to do so. But you might find these yani, beneficial, inshallah. Um, and I'm going to be answering them very, very quickly. Very quickly because it is late. But I will answer them as well. I'm not here to discuss uh, psychological discussions or the theoretical ones. Just the fiqh ones, which are quick, halal, haram. Is this wrong? Is that right? Etc. Etc. So we discussed that, uh, uh, we discussed that the pointing of the index finger was a sunnah which was determined by the companions witnessing that the Prophet would move it into shahwit. And we also established that the class position is to point the index finger from the beginning of the shahwit. Is this correct given that we won't see the finger move as the evidence suggests? Yes, that is correct. My position is that the finger is to be held in this manner like that. And the movement that is mentioned in any hadith was the going up and the eventual going down. And that's why, and that, the reason for that is because there's no evidence clear that it was rocking. This, this action, it is not clear from the hadith, authentically, that this happened all the way through. Rather, we know that it moved. So this move could have been the going up once and then coming back down again. It could also have been when it was up and someone reciting, it's almost automatically, psychologically, the finger might move when you're speaking and making dua, like Ibn Qayyim said. So that is the position of the class. Could you give advice on how to bring parents to start praying? Unfortunately, I can't. That's unfortunately too big a question. Uh, when you shorten prayers, do you always need to combine? No, it's the exact opposite. When you shorten prayers, you are not 
to be combining the prayer. It is only permissible. She has grabbed that. You know, it's only permissible. It is not part of shorts. It's not part of traveling to have to actually combine the prayers. Okay. So when you shorten the Dhuhr prayer, that is it. It is not that you then pray. Are you watching the the questions? Yeah, oh, you got a question there as well. Yep. Yeah? I'm talking about traveling. Listen to me carefully. People who are traveling, they get making this big mistake. They say, I'm going to have to shorten the prayers. If I shorten the prayers, that must mean that I must combine. This is wrong. It's the exact opposite. Shortening is one thing. Combining is another thing. It is sunnah to shorten. It is not sunnah to combine. Is that clear, everybody? It is sunnah to shorten the prayer. It is not sunnah to combine. It is permissible to combine. Only permissible. In fact, as I said in the class, you should avoid combining. The scholars, Ahlul Ilm, do not combine unless they are actually on the road traveling. But once they get there to their hotel, which they're staying for for one night, then they pray Maghrib, they pray Isha later on that night to don't combine the prayers. If you're very, very tired and you're this and you're that, okay, fine, you can combine. If you're praying in a congregation and the woman leaves in the middle of the prayer, is it okay to shift to the left or right? Yes, it is sunnah to close the gap that a, uh, uh, that a leaving person leaves. And that can be one or two steps. The steps do not matter as long as it's directly to the right, to the left, straight in front, or a single diagonal walk. What's not permissible is that someone six behind people down on the right-hand side, they walk out and you have a little guy there all the way over there and you then just slot in there. That's what's not allowed. But you know, one to the right, one to the left, one, two to the front, one, two to the diagonal, that's something which is not only is it allowed to, it's a sunnah, the Prophet ﷺ said in the hadith which is authentic, it's the best step. Three, when you go to the fighter how I was praying with the right hand over the left hand on the chest and you say, I mean, are you supposed to move your right hand or finger? No. In Surah Al-Fatiha, while I was praying, there's no moving of the hand whatsoever. Fiqh um, question. In regards to OCD in the religion, if someone continuously feels the, the need to do sajda, sajda for every salah, at what point do they draw the line? They draw the line in that they don't do it at all. There is no sajda sahu in the prayer at all unless you miss something out or add something or you forget something as per the rules that we covered in class. When reciting Quran in Salah, is the Surah Fatiha minimum for every rakah? Yes, is the answer. Is there any basis to reciting the Surah after the Fatiha in the first two rakah of Far Salah and all the rakah of Sunnah Salah? Yes, of course there is. There are hundreds of ahadith that show that the Prophet recited a Surah but only that these are recommended, not obligatory, in all of the units of the Fard prayer as well. So I know that we have this uh, uh, idea that, for example, in Furaqa Isha, you have two full and two empty, where you pray surah, you recite surahs only in the first two, and then not in the last two. That is correct. That's the normative practice of the Prophet ﷺ. However, it is also narrated that he recited it in the third and the fourth as well, something short. So sometimes it is sunnah, to revive that sunnah and recite something in the third, recite something in the fourth, even if it's only qulhullah ahad. But the normative practice is that in the fard prayers, you recite only in the first two and not in the second two, and all throughout the sunnah prayer, and that has been narrated by mutawatir hadith.
Uh, we won't, you know what we won't for this? It's about that point. You, you know why we won't? Because we're going to be here for donkey's years. <laughs> I, I swear we will be, because that's like, like the first five questions out of 6,000. During the class, you didn't state it was impermissible for women to pray in public. Um, you didn't state it was impermissible, i.e. bending down in the view of men. Does this mean that a woman can pray in a park or some area of a shopping centre if she lost track of time, etc.? And also, could you clarify that it is indeed permissible to pray in changing rooms with music? Yes, I said it is permissible to pray in changing rooms with music. And I said that there's a difference between sama and istama. Yani istima'a wa sima'a is different. When you hear something, there's one ruling. When you listen to something, it's a different ruling. So when you are in a shop or whatever, you hear it. That's not uh, listening to the music. And even if you listen to the music, it is not an invalidator of the prayer as long as you maintain your khushur. As for praying outside, I said that I didn't say it was haram, outright haram, because someone's going to try and cover themselves in some kind of way. But many of the scholars considered it to be impermissible for women to be praying in a mixed in, a, in, a, in an area which is public, exposed in front of the people where they can see her bending down. And that is the safest position to hold. And so therefore a person, if they are in a park or whatever, they should do it out of the way of people or in a corner and so on. If one added and deducted a during a prayer, what is preferred in this scenario to perform? No, uh, this, forget that you, I've, I've written that, uh, Sophia, go and look at the notes. I've answered that very clearly because you haven't asked about a scenario, you just asked about the principle. The principle is very there, very clearly there. Uh, I want to ask you, uh, I want to ask you to clarify how exactly you would correct your salah if you miss a rukun. So if you forgot to do a ruku' and you are in sujood, how would you go back to the ruku' position? So here we go. I am praying dhuhr prayer. And in my first raka'ah, I completely forgot to make ruku'ah. I am now in my second raka'ah in sajda. And I suddenly realized, goodness me, I forgot my ruku'ah in my first raka'ah. What happens now? You get straight up from your sajda. And you go straight into the court. So you just stand up and go into your, your rukur. That's the first thing that you do. The second thing that you do is to realize that you are now back again in your first rakah. And the prayer continues from there. The third thing that you do is that you realize at the end of the prayer that you've now actually prayed five units because of your mistake. Then you will make the sajda sahul after you give the taslim. Okay? Or before the taslim, it doesn't matter. Before you give salam or after the salam, it doesn't matter as I said in the class. Both are accepted, and you will do two sajda, and then assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. I hope that that point is clear. Could you touch on the subject of the prohibition of women attending the mosque, which was declared by Aisha? Just that I will only, I will, I will only say that this is because he saw the time getting bad, women getting looser, quote-unquote, standards, condition. We're talking about niqab, hijab, beauty, perfuming. The whole kind of concepts of the dangerous signs of a woman going outside and being a fitna. This is what she was talking about. She was not happy with it. She said if the Prophet ﷺ was here at this time, he would have prevented you going out. It's a warning. It is not an evidence in itself. The one who prays witr before sleeping and then wakes up early and decides to pray to hajjud. Do they have to pray the witr again or is it optional? I believe it is optional. I don't think it is obligatory and there's difference of the scholars upon that. Okay? There's difference of scholars upon that. And the reason why the, someone has said that the witr is the prayer of the last prayer of the night, you need to pray witr again, they already did that. And then they took an opportunity to pray. So there is difference. Some said you must, some said didn't. 
And I, for myself, I, I'm, accepting, I'm accepting of both opinions. And regarding to sisters, I know you said it's not permissible for one to pray sitting in a car if they are able to stand. Does this apply for women as well? As you said, it isn't good for women to pray, pray in a public space. I said that a woman mustn't be caught out in a public space. If they're in a car, they must get themselves home or to an area which is closed off. If there was a scenario where she's not able to get home, she's not able to drive to a place where she can stand because she must stand. Unless she's pregnant or ill or sick or something, she has no excuse to sit down. So unless she cannot find any single place, then and outside she looks and is very dangerous or she fears for herself, then she's allowed to pray sitting down. Because the ruling on praying sitting down on a plane, for example, is based entirely upon fear, no other reason. Because it's just about possible to pray on a plane as well, standing. But the reason, as I said, as I explained in the class in detail, is that it is because of fear. If I join in the middle of a rak'ah, when, when I pray what I have missed after, do I need to pray this rak'ah in full too? I'm late, and I join in the middle of a rak'ah. When I pray what I've missed after, do I need to pray the Saraka in full too? No. I said that in a class, where if a person comes late and you are there in the Surah or in Fatiha, you caught that Raka, that's your first Raka, that's it. As long as you catch an Imam in Ruku', that entire Raka has been caught. That goes down as number one. Okay? I have a bit of confusion with the Qasr. I'm about to drive to an airport in a taxi. And this drive lasts the entire period of Dhuhr. And I intend to pray Asr at the airport because as Qasr prayer, since my as as Qasr because my traveller status, my traveller status will begin at the airport. Is it better to pray Dhuhr in a taxi, i.e. within Dhuhr time but missing the rukun of standing, or is it better to pray Dhuhr with Asr in the airport as a concession, even though technically Dhuhr didn't fall during the actual traveller status time? This is a good question, and it shows a misunderstanding. So I want you to understand something. Your traveler status starts <coughs> when you leave your home. But your traveler benefits start when you actually um, are out, yeah, out of the city, which we said is the ring road or the airport. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean by that that you cannot actually do qasr or combine or anything until you are in, in that zone, outside of the ring road or the airport. But when you leave your home and you are a traveller, you can make the intention, and you must make the intention, that I am now going to pray my dhuhr at the airport. Even though you are moving and you're still at home or still on the doorstep or just getting a taxi, you will say, I am going to pray my dhuhr and my asr together at the airport. And so that's what would happen. So no, at all, would you? No, no, no. You mustn't pray dhuhr in the taxi. You must pray actually afterwards because you, you, you're missing out the rukun of standing and you have the perfect permission to combine over there at the airport. So when you get there, you'll pray the two dhuhr and you pray the two asr, whether it's dhuhr time or asr time. If one did wudu and then put a little makeup on, which is non-waterproof, could they wudu over that again? Or would they have to take the makeup off? They have to take the makeup off. How can you make up for a major mistake in your previous salah that completely invalidated it, missing a rukun? I don't know what that question means. Okay? I don't understand what that means. You told us that to follow one particular madhab if you are not a student of knowledge. Is it okay to follow the class positions you have been giving us on each issue? Yes, um, you can. And as with that, there says, 
please go and look at that thread and watch that first lesson where I explain this in detail. Can you please let me know if I'm if it's correct to raise my index finger during tashahud when I say shahadu Allah ilaha illallah until before doing salam to right and left. Yes, of course, this is the Hanafi position and a position of the Shafi'is as well. I said just my position, my class position, is that it starts at the beginning, at Tahiyyatulillah, and stays there. But with the other ulama, it is up and down at Ashhadu Allah ilallah. This is completely permissible. And if a person lifted Ashhadu Allah ilallah and to hold it there until he said, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah, so it's down. And then, this is the Shafi'i position. Okay? I consider, I believe, as the Hanbalis do, that there's no evidence to start it at Ashadu Allah ilallah. And that's why we start from the beginning. But is it permissible, like the sister is asking? Yes, it is an opinion which is held by the Shafi'i school, and that's not a problem. Can you pray standing up throughout the Salah if sitting down is painful due to an injury? If yes, how do you make the Ruku and the Sajda? Like this person, Batman, uh, says, well done. Whoever Batman is, Zakalakha. The exactly correct answer. Uh, can you uh, talk? Can you reply back to a question when making wudu? If you have the intention not to pray the wudu, nafal prayer. All right. The question is being asked that I want to pray the two raka'ah nafal after wudu, the reward of which is Jannah, as long as you don't speak. Whilst I'm making the wudu, am I allowed to respond to a question? Now the question, if it's a necessary one, then there's absolutely no doubt about that. That's fine. Someone asked something urgent, that's okay. Okay. What's not allowed is chatting and talking about some kind of stuff or whatever. So that's what you should avoid. That's what you should avoid. When going to Sajjid and Rupu'ah, knees first or hands first, the class position is that you go knees first. It's acceptable either way, but the class position, knees first. Why is this thing jumping? Because more comments, more questions. Yeah, you know, just remember where to stop because we're not going to take these questions for the next six hours. So have an idea about where people are taking a bit easier. Right. Can you repeat the same second surah in the same salah because you want to? Yes, you can. first second, third, and fourth, no problem. What was the class position as to when qunut should be recited? Not at all, before ruku, after ruku. My class position was the exact opposite. I said, not at all, before ruku, and after ruku. That's what I said in the class, okay? The class position is that you should sometimes leave it out, as the sunnah was. I said you should do it before ruku, as the sunnah was, and you should do it after ruku, as the sunnah was, in order to revive the sunnah by the Prophet If you make a mistake in your sunnah prayers, do you do sajda sahu as well? Yes. I forgot to mention that in class, so I'm glad you did. The sajda sahu applies to all prayers, obligatory and non-obligatory. In sajda, you said one is not allowed. Uh, I just want to say, folks, uh, please stop asking extra questions. Uh, because we do have to go home before midnight tonight. Okay? In Sajda, you said one is not allowed to use dua which are from the Quran. Yes. What was the reason for this? And does this apply for both obligatory and nafil prayers? Yes, it does. It is not from the Quran, it is the Quran. One does not recite the Quran. And that's why I said just change it from Rabbana Atina Fid Dunya to Allahumma Atina Fid Dunya Hasana. Yani just change the ayah. And that does apply in Sunnah. And you can make dua in sujood in your own language in the obligatory prayers. I believe you can. In addition to saying Subhanahu Rabbi Al-A'la. As Isha has 17 raka'ah, do we have to pray two nafal at the end? No, because the 17 raka'ah is the opinion of only of some of the Hanafi scholars. There's no evidence that it has 17 raka'at. And the only thing which is obligatory is the four and then three witr. And two sunnah is two sunnah. Everything else is optional. 
and it's not even agreed upon. From the, uh, are any non-rukan errors made by a masbuq in the rak'ah that he doesn't do with the imam still swallowed by him? Yes. Any mistake that you make when you're praying behind an imam, any mistake that are non-rukan, non-essential, they are all swallowed by the imam. You do not have to make such a sahu. He's the one who deals with it by the fact that you're leading him, which is one of the great advantages of praying in jama'ah. Also regarding takbiratul intiqal, the takbir of movement, Allahu Akbar. Is this said at the start, middle or end of the movement? And I said that it is, uh, uh, I want you to know that it is, uh, whatever it is, um, it, has to, it has to say, you have to do it before you move. That's the point. So whether you do it at the beginning or in the middle or during, that's the key. You, of course you can't do it at the end. You can't go down and say Allahu Akbar. You have to start it when you're moving. That's the whole point of saying takbir al Okay? Could you explain the concept of a sutra? The sutra is basically a sunnah, something which you put in front of you. It gives you a prayer zone just a little bit above, ahead of your sajda place. And it's small, like a small bag, handbag, saddle is an example. If you don't have something big, then you can use it in a line just to show and guide out your, your, your place. Um, if I finished work at half past three and I found that the sky was yellow, although Maghrib was at 4.20, does this mean at 3.30 it became the makruh time to pray Asr, even though we have 40 minutes in Maghrib? And do we withhold Asr if the sun has already begun to set? Now you listen to me carefully, Yasmin. This is a good question. Number one, yes, the scholars, majority of them, other than the Hanafi school, the majority of the scholars consider that one hour before Maghrib is makruh time for Asr. One hour before Maghrib. So 40 minutes, definitely. And as you say, when you see the yellowness in the sky, it becomes makruh. You must pray, but it's a dislike prayer. You should have prayed earlier, but you have to pray. Next question. If the sun then starts to set, so we are now in the very, very uh, yellow period now where it's actually setting, do we hold off our asr or do we pray? No, you have to pray asr because the time is running out, but it is a haram prayer. So what that is an example of is you being punished for praying a haram time, but your prayer is accepted. It does not need to be repeated. You can't do haram prayer. Sorry, you can't say, oh, it's haram and then not pray because then you have to repeat the prayer as well. And you did haram. It's like a worse haram. So what I'm saying is if you pray after maghrib, it's worse. So you should pray there and then. Pray it there and then. And there's some discussion about that, about leaving it or not, and praying it afterwards. But I think you should pray it there and then. Um, because some of the ulama, they said that you might not then have a chance to pray after something might happen, etc., etc., etc. It is in principle permissible for a person to wait until afterwards, but it is a worse sin. The Asian upbringing teach you to read in a set way. For instance, Isha, you read four sunnah, four far, two sunnah, two nafar, three water, two nafar. Where have the four sunnah come from? Some hadith. And it is not agreed upon only on a Hanafi school. It's okay to follow them if you're a Hanafi. Otherwise, you do not need to pray them. We were taught to read Fatiha and Surah in the first two raka'ah. And only Fatiha is in the last two. Is there any basis to this? Yes, the Sunnah indicates that. Regarding the Sutra to indicate the prayer zone. Do we need to practice at home? It's a Sunnah to do it at home and in the masjid. Yes. Uh, the palms of hands supposed to face Qibla. Yes, they are. But if they don't, because it's a bit like this. So it should be straight. But if it's like this... It is no major problem. There's, it's flexible. 
What does one do if they forget to make sajda sahu once missing a wajib action? They have to then go back and make sajda If uh, Sorry. If you do not make sajda sahu within 5 to 10 minutes of finishing a prayer that was deficient because you missed the wajib and then you forgot to do sajda sahu and then you remember within 5 or 10 minutes and you're still in the masjid, then you can still make the sajda sahu and that's fine. But if five or ten minutes go by, or you walk out the door of the masjid, you have to pray the entire prayer again. You lost the opportunity to make up for it with a sajda. The punishment is to pray the whole prayer again, quote unquote. Um, uh, I, I'm sorry, Nigat, I can't do that. Uh, I remember reading a hadith where Aisha was asked to fetch a mushaf from the masjid whilst on a menses. I th- I'm not sure about that. Uh, please clarify if to make up all our individual misprayers in the past. I said you didn't. Please re- see your notes of your students. Do you, therefore, istikhara, do you mention the matter once or twice? And you mention it twice, but in the second time you can just say the issue. And you can speak in English, by the way. You know the dua al-istikhara? When you make istikhara, the dua, that should be in Arabic. But when it comes to the issue of mentioning it, there's not a requirement that you have to say it in uh, Arabic itself. You can just say the issue, the matter, explain it, whatever. It's not actually important to say that in Arabic. You advise to pray in your shoes if you can, as that is sunnah. But we walk everywhere with our shoes, so we won't know if we walked over urine or not. So isn't it best to take them off? Well, if you think that you've just recently been in urine, then yeah, it is. But yeah, I know people don't always walk in urine and stuff like that. And every couple of steps that you do, the rest of the stuff, yeah, it clears it off. This is an amazing yeah, cleansing manner. So no, you don't need to worry about that. Could you clarify the issue of menstruating a woman entering the masjid? Am I correct in saying that she can enter for classes in separate rooms as long as she doesn't sit in actual prayer area? That's what I said. I said that she should avoid uh, you know, taking up the space of a woman who is not on her period and she wants to pray. Is it also not allowed to touch a book of tafsir? I covered that. You are allowed to. Can you, if one misses a prayer due to sleep, they need to pray as soon as they wake up. Correct. However, if the prayer is missed due to an operation or one fainted and was unconscious, or one is in a coma, they do not need to make up the salah. Yes, I said that, but only if it's after three days. If you wake up within three days, you regain consciousness within three days, then you should make up the prayers that you missed. But however, after three days of unconsciousness, for whatever reason, you do not need to make up the prayer. If sajda sahu is done incorrectly, how can this be rectified? Then it can't be rectified. If you've done it incorrectly, then you've, you've left the prayer. If you realize afterwards you did it wrong, you've got to pray again. Have taken note that all prayers are two, except the two sunnah of Fajr and Witr. I had thought Maghrib is also, also three. Maghrib, of course, is three. I said that. Maghrib never changes. Maghrib never changes. I said that. I said that. Clarification as to what is meant as having quarter <coughs> as an individual or a congregation. The clarification is that... Uh, <coughs> Uh, I, I described that on stage, man. Huh? Yeah, to, to, to just get into ruku'ah, that's it. It doesn't matter that the imam is coming up. You just get into ruku'ah and, and you don't have to say anything. You need to try and say, Subhana Rabbi al But if you didn't, the prayer will still be valid. Okay? As long as the imam has not said, Sami Allah alayhi wa hamidah. Can you combine the nafil salah of wudu with any of the optional salah associated with the five obligatory prayer? In my opinion, no, it should be offered separately. Separately. When in ruku, can we bend our legs to achieve the straight back? No, you need to keep your legs straight. The only time that you need to bend your legs is if they themselves are uh, 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 causing pain to the back. Okay? Causing pain to the back. What did you teach over the weekends? Over the past two weekends? (laughs) 
<laughs> what did you answer in the questions? Wallah, I took so many questions. What were you doing? Honest to God, I took so many questions. I don't know what on earth is happening here. Honest to God, I've got no idea. Honest to God, Shaz. Okay? And if you've already started to pray and see a gap, should you feel the gap? Yes. If it's in front of you, yes. A sister left home at... Think, oh my God, Shaz. Shaz, I hope you kept account on where they're blagging it. From the beard. We're not even From the beard. We're not even a quarter of the way up. Oh, we know. Shaz, you go home. We'll sort it out, don't worry. <laughs> a niqab, I'm serious, bro. we can do it. I know how to press the thingy. A niqabi left house at an appropriate time as on a tra- and is on a train, but there's no place to safely stand and pray. Salah time is finishing. Wouldn't make it in time to pray at destination. What would she do? Um, no, it's, you, shouldn't, you shouldn't pray sitting down. If this is a one-off scenario and it's Maghrib which is finishing, then she'll pray with, with Isha. If it was Asr that was finishing, she'd have to pray there and then sitting down. The reason is because, as I said, Zuhar and Asr is flexible, and Maghrib and Isha are flexible. But not Asr to Maghrib. That's the end of a prayer time. Okay? And um, if there are people around that she felt unsafe to sit and pray, yeah, same thing. Uh, I, I am in a migraine patient. I know when it starts with a slight pain, if I go down for sujood, it will become worse. Am I allowed to pray straight away sitting down, even when the migraine pain is very mild? Yes, that is permissible. The pain does not need to be very heavy. Um, the threat of the pain is enough for you to pray sitting down. At my office meeting before I pray alone, can I give the adhan and qabah with a low voice? Yes, you can. If you are a sister, but I don't know, then you should not. Okay, it's best to avoid it. Would one need wudu if one were to access the Quran on a mobile device? And we said yes. What if, uh, and it would be on the safe side. What if one forgets to send a sahur remember later? I said that already, you've got to repeat, repeat the prayer. If you normally pray asr at the later time, and you are traveling, and know that on your way, hold on, you are blagging that man, you are not part of that class, don't even try it. If a brother does not attend the congregational prayer at the local mosque, and remains at home, can he pray before the Jama'ah time? Yes, he can. If you only have access to a Hanafi Salah time tool, how does one calculate Shafi Asr time? You can't calculate Shafi, Shafi Asr time, so you have to go by a timetable that you have in front of you. To calculate Shafi Asr time is beyond your and my ability, uh, requires an observatory. My question is requiring to follow a madhab. If you allow madhabi during to be due to being an, a lay person rather than choice, and you are taught by, are taught by many different teachers and institutes, blah, 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 when it comes to salah, is it okay to be following many different schools' opinions on different things like wiping socks, combining? Yes, it is. No problem. As long as you're following a teacher in each one and you want to follow your desires, it's no problem. The issue is easy. I have seen some make wudu before reading from, from a book of hadith. This is out of, done out of adab. It's not certainly not an obligation. Okay? It's done out of adab. Can you pray a two rakah salah of tawaf after asr salah? I think you can because that is a prayer of reason. Okay? I believe it is permissible. Are there four rakah of sunnah salah before fard isha? Yes, they are. They're called ghair muqada, as you packs call it. And that is something which is permissible, inshallah. Some of the scholars said the hadith is authentic. Some said it's not so. But the Hanafis do, and that's good. If there is a moment of silence in Salah, if you forget where you are, is there a duration of silence that will nullify the prayer? No, there is no obvious duration that will nullify the prayer. And that's something which you can continue with. That's not a, that's not a problem. Unless you are quiet for like half an hour or something. So it's going to be something extreme. In a jama'ah outside a masjid, you're at a relative's house. You don't agree with the chosen imam. It's an uncle, so you can't op- openly disagree. What should you do? Just pray in the Jama'ah. I don't, I don't understand that one, sorry. But what if you have a screen protector on your phone? 
Should one join at all times, even if they have missed the last rukuk? Yes, they should. Sunnah in the prohibited times. Sunnah wudu salah in all prohibited times. And if not, can it be made up? No, it can't be made up. You should avoid the prohibited times. Iqamah for women only congregation. Is it sunnah? Yes. It's, uh, no, it's not sunnah. Permissible. In my opinion. Raising of the hands. Do this at the beginning of the position. Therefore, coming up from rukuk, you move back up, putting your hands down to the side, then raise them again at the qiyam stage. No. The coming up from Rukhul, and there is a difference of opinion on this, there is a difference of opinion on this, but no, I believe that the sunnah for raising your hands when you rise up is to raise them when you're coming up. Not that you come up and hands are at your sides and we Allah and alhamd, Allahu Akbar. That is a held opinion. That is a held opinion. But that's not the position of the majority, so it's certainly not mine. Okay? Um, does a person have to follow one method? Oh, no, he doesn't have to follow one method. Changing your intention to a different one from Asr to Dhuhr if you, as, you have, as you had not prayed it. Um, changing obligatory to a different one from Asr to Dhuhr as you had not... No, no, you can't do that. You cannot do that. Of course you cannot do that. Okay? You have to break your Salah and start again. Uh, some people go to Sajda after Salah has ended to make Dua in English. That's Haram, that is. Absolute Haram. That's Bid'ah to do that, okay? To go into sajda after the prayer. Who does that? On what basis is that? I was praying, this is bid'ah. I was praying Jama'ah with a sister who I asked, should we pray together? But she wasn't reciting out loud. It was Maghrib. And because I made the intention, I continued with her till the end. She was actually praying by herself. Do I repeat that? No. That was a Jama'ah. Because, you know, that's what you thought you were doing. And it doesn't matter what she was doing. Okay? She will end up praying Maghrib anyway. You get what you intended for. I was praying, actually you are killing it, my girl is killing it. I was praying in a woman congregation, fifth line back, so I could not see who was leading. It was a young girl and did not seem to know how to lead and continued to the end. Should it, or she was not pubescent, okay, should it be repeated and could I break away when I know things are going wrong? Yes, it is permissible uh, to go away when it's wrong, something's messed up, avoid that though, but it is permissible. And yes, um, post-pubescent, um, a pre-pubescent girl pre-pubescent girl in a woman's jama'ah I mean you know if I was a girl if I was a girl I would break away from that yeah Allah knows best if we're not supposed to touch the Quran what's the hukum of women reading the Quran was on periods it's allowed for women to read on periods I believe that some scholars said no she's like the one who's sexually impure because there's no doubt the majority of the scholars in fact I think ijma'ah maybe that the one who's sexually impure in Janaba, they're not allowed to recite the Qur'an. That's fine. They said that the one who's menstruating is qiyas upon her, an energy upon her. We say what Ibn Taymiyyah said, there's not a single statement or evidence that prohibits the one who's menstruating from reciting the Qur'an, reciting the Qur'an. And when it comes to the rest of the rulings, then she uses gloves and, you know, phones and all the rest of it. Uh, the room is so small <coughs> that the sisters remain on their side, but the brothers are sometimes on level with them, even though they are dividers, we split them. Is the congregation prayer permissible? Side by side with a divider. Yes, I think that's permissible. Allah knows best. It's not sunnah though. Can you use a prayer mat with a picture of a Kaaba? Which Yanni prayer mat doesn't have a picture of the Kaaba? <laughs> what kind of pack are you, man? 
<laughs> that's no problem, Nigat. Okay, I'm not joking. Yeah, that's okay. Should the four rakats sunnah before Dhuhr be praying two by two? Yes, two by two. Hanafi say four, but the sunnah is two by two. Has the unbelievable. <laughs> Next one's unbelievable. Has the announcement been made yet for us to start posting questions? You're a don, Zubair. You're a don. What about the gloves? I've got no idea about the gloves. So why can you use a cloth to carry it around? Okay, that's all that stuff. Brilliant. Yep. You can use a stylus. Brilliant idea. I wish I would have thought about that. By the way, whoever saw Dragon's Den the other day, because I saw it today. See that guy, Raj? The Hindu guy from, I think, he looked Hindu anyway. And um, I hope he wasn't Muslim stuff that would be so bad. But I'm pretty sure as a Hindu he was, yeah? And he definitely from Geordie, he was definitely. Anyway, Miskeen, oh, that's funny. He had a glove. And he called it the eye glove. And basically it's a glove that has 7% silver in it, which allows for enough heat transfer to work on phones and stuff. So he's created the whole kind of, you know, whatever. So he's made like about 150 grand worth of sales in four years. And anyway, so Deborah Mead and she was out. The other girl was out. Kelly, whatever her name is. And that other pack, whatever he is. Pack was his boy, is he? I don't know. Indian guy. He's out. And then what's his name? Um, uh, the other one, Loudbraff. What's his name? Peter Jones? Yeah, yeah Peter Jones. Peter Jones cussed an absolute life out of the guy. He cussed him so badly. He cussed him. He goes, you know, he goes, he goes, he goes. Have you got pattern on this? And the Muskeen Indian, he goes, yeah, three years ago, I trademarked the eye glove, whatever. He goes, you know what? You got nothing. <laughs> you got nothing. And Deborah Meason goes, he's got nothing. He goes, he's got nothing. Apple were to come along today, they would take all your money. They would launch a lawsuit against you. Blah 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 blah. There's a bit of argument on the panel. Then they all said, actually, he's the guy who knows telecoms, whatever. So like Duncan Valentine, mm. he, like, he got a bit, you know? Got him. <laughs> he goes, what do you know about what thing? He goes, I'll give you your 35 grand. Yalla, let's do it. So he... He, 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 he did it, yeah? He did it, yeah. You can buy those gloves at every single station. <laughs> 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 well, like, well, that's why I'm saying the story. Because when you look at it, you know that some Chinese guy is going to put 8% silver in and he's going to sell it for 50p. All over the show. And, but that's why he said he got angry, he did it like I think our personal thingy. But anyway, the point is, is that we should have used those gloves. The sisters can get a pair of those gloves and you can use your swiping on your iPhone and your iPad. Or just swipe at the top of the screen. Or just swipe at the top of the screen on the bottom and not worry about it. On an iPhone. On an iPhone, yeah. Um... It's a sunnah to make taslim after the imam has given salam to right and left. Is it sunnah to make taslim after the imam? I don't understand what that means. Uh, oh, right, right. Yeah, yeah. It is after. Yes, after. But when I say after, I don't mean delay. So there's no evidence to stop and wait while he goes, Asalaamu Alaikum Rahmatullah, you don't move. It should be, Asalaamu Alaikum Rahmatullah, Asalaamu Alaikum Rahmatullah, Asalaamu Alaikum Rahmatullah, Asalaamu Alaikum Rahmatullah. No, Asalaamu Alaikum Rahmatullah. No, that's much delay. Yeah, it just be just after. Uh, how can we read the Quran? I've got a video on that. Okay, just type into it, type those words into the uh, Google, you'll find it. How does one advise someone in issues like when a person who's unaware of the ruling, but she? Uh, oh, that's a big question, man. Sorry. Oh, my big question. Don't ask big questions, please. I have read that if one laughs out loud and slow with an open mouth, this invalidates the wudu in addition to the salah. Is this correct? Please advise. I said this in the class. It's the salah and not the wudu. Salah and not the wudu. Yes, the hajjud alone you can recite loudly. Yes, you should avoid praying in front of a mirror. The scholars dislike that and it's out of focus so you should pray to the side. 
if you see like half your arm or something, that's okay. But you should miss the entire image or the, the majority of the image. Can one pray the witter with three units together and other times two to one? Yes. I said in the class that is the sunnah to alternate between that. So three together sometimes and then two and then one separately sometimes. What is the ruling regarding lifting and folding the trousers at the ankles in Salah? I believe that should be avoided. I believe that a person should either have his trousers up before the prayer and at all times and not just for the Salah because this is a contradiction of the Hadith of Prophet when he said don't fold up your stuff everything should make such that hair shouldn't tie up sleeves you shouldn't roll up you know some people they might do that because they don't want their sleeves to touch the thing whereas if you had done that beforehand for wudu' for example and then you hadn't taken them down and you prayed like that that's no problem but if you just starting to stand for salah you see the dirty area and then you do your sleeves up like this to avoid your sleeves touching when you go to sajda this is not allowed likewise the hair likewise the hair likewise the uh, trousers I believe that a person does not need to lift their trousers above their ankles if it's trousers if it's trousers okay is it permissible to do tahitul masjid during the permitted times I said yes in the class please look at the further details as well janazah some, some, some give salam to the right only the right only is only what is obligatory but if you do right and left then that's the complete that's fine can a sister who believes in covering the feet during salah be led by a sister who doesn't. Yes, they can, and vice versa. And that's uh, it. Is that thing here done? Done. Zakumullah khair, barakallahu feek. Oh, sorry, sorry. We have to. The one, one, last page here. Oh, sorry. Deception. If anyone's still alive, <laughs> yeah. Then this trick of uh, deception, the deception by sad miskin. I don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. Please, someone teach me how to play cricket. Someone give him some Kansas. Someone show me any, you know, something, whatever. That's this weekend. The University of Salford Friday. Okay, Max. If a woman did Umrah but had her menstruation in the last few days but before leaving and did not do Tawaf as in the final Tawaf before leaving, what can she do now? Is there anything she can do? It was over six years ago. She didn't do it. If she didn't do it, unfortunately that Umrah was not done. That's it. Um, and the only thing now is to repeat that Umrah and uh, that's it. Because what she should have done, uh, I mean she did the right thing. Let me just make it very clear. And maybe Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala would write that Umrah down for her if she decided not to do the um, the Tawaf because she was on menstruation and she believed so. And she didn't do it for that reason, then maybe Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala would reward her because she came down and she stuck to the Sunnah or what she thought to be the Sunnah. Uh, as she heard, my opinion was that she was in that position, she should have gone and done it anyway. And Allah would have accepted it, inshaAllah. And that is my opinion. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best. وآخر دعوانا الحمد لله رب العالمين وزاكم الله خير